You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Well, dude, thanks for coming. I'm excited that we could get F1 and get you back in the studio again. So, uh, But for people that might not have listened to the first one, give us a little bit of introduction and get us up to speed. Sure. So, well, thank you for having me. This is awesome. This place is awesome. Uh, you guys are awesome. Um, yeah, uh, I'm pretty much almost done with my PhD at USC now uh, since last time we met. Um, I do research in the field of like muscle physiology, exercise physiology type of topic, but it's a bit broad because we look at everything that is like performance based. So it can be exercise physiology, it can be a little bit of biomechanics. There's a lot of components that go into it. Um, I went back to uh, working in academics in 2018, but 15 years prior to that, I was a strength coach. So I, I was a strength and conditioning coach for many different years several different years, different sports, American football. I did lots with track and field, uh, in Italy, some rugby. So that's kind of my background. And yeah, and now recently I also turned uh, my interest more into like endurance sports as well. So a little bit of everything. Badass. Yeah, we got an array of topics to Ooh, cover today. I'm excited, Tex. But before we get there, we have a gift for Antonio. Oh, we do. Thank you. Couple genuine world class pieces of power athlete Thank clothing as seen on shop.powerathletehq.com. I don't know if we've ever done a gifting online. Um, wow, um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so we got to get you to hold that up. So Thank that you. Uh, those of you that are listening, tune in to YouTube to wow. check out. Love the car. Uh, that's actually my favorite shirt. And then, ironically, as we were working with uh, Victor Hugo today, he uh, before we got on to do the Echo Bike sp- Sprint. So we got a little hold that guy up. Yeah, he uh, turns go. me and goes, uh, time to move the dirt. I was like, hmm. Mm. Harry uh, Heppensaw yes. would have been upset that we didn't get that on camera. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're very so welcome. Nice. Power Athlete Nation. We're taking a break from this episode to let you know Black Friday starts early. We've got heavy discounts up to 50% off store-wide. Go to shop.powerathletehq.com and snag yourself some killer swag. That is my favorite sweatshirt that we're rocking, a little tie-dye action. I didn't wear it because then we would clash. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I have one, and uh, my daughter Jamie stole it and wears it, which is hilarious. It's, it's like a, it's a double X. swimming. Well, that's uh, very stylish now for the kids. They wear like really big massive oversized sweatshirts. Yeah. So it looks like a massive dress. That's big when you're 11 well, years old. Yeah, I spent a, a number of years as a collegiate athlete and sweatshirts being stolen by females around campus, that was a big deal. <laughs> Did you ever have to go on like a recon and get it back? Oh, especially when the, uh, yeah, some things change. But that's not what we're here to discuss, John. We have an expert in the field in studio. So- well, that exact same thing happened to me, except we had to wear our, our sweat, uh, like our, you know, whatever it was, like off-season conditioning. We had to wear it. Our stuff had numbers on uh-huh. it. Yeah. And we had to wear it for training. And uh, mine ended up getting swiped. And if we didn't, we got in trouble. So there was like a recon mission to fucking reclaim my shit. Yeah. It was always a big deal. 
Well, some of that stress from those moments caused muscle stiffness. Oh, I like mm. the bridge. But a different kind. Well, that was an awkward transition. So and, now uh, Chris is full of awkward transitions. <laughs> we are going to get in. I That's, think this is an awesome place to start because, uh, yeah, as, as John mentioned, working with Victor Hugo, there is a sense of stiffness as we're introducing new movements. Yep. And he brings a level of tension to learning a new movement. But then stiffness well, uh, has value. Especially coming from jujitsu which is so like fluid and mm -hmm. like, like these guys, like it's really interesting. The task specific tension associated with jujitsu where they're in this kind of like flow state. And then it's like isometric contractions. And uh, the one thing that's been really interesting that we talked about is for you to be able to lift heavy weights, you have to have a level of stiffness now yep. in the muscle and the, and the ligaments and tendons. And what's wild is actually trying to teach somebody how to like create and generate stiffness within those, uh, yeah. you know, in those pieces specific for the task. Yeah. Specific for uh, the task. So I know you're excited to talk about this. So let's let's lay a foundation. Speak to exactly what muscle stiffness is in the world of lifting performance, and then what your research has found that you want to highlight today. Yeah, that would be great. That's pretty much my area of research for right now, and that's what I've been working on the last five or six years. Uh, so I think there's there's a bit of misunderstanding when it comes to uh, like the term stiffness, because if you ask anyone in the gym uh, when they've where they can't stretch, where they feel tight. They say, like, I feel very stiff. That's a common understanding of what stiffness is. So lack of movement, lack of range of motion. Um, the stiffness that I'm referring to is uh, stiffness within the tissue, so the, the skeletal muscles and the tendons connected to it, is the ability to tolerate load without undergoing excessive deformation. So, like, if you were to think of a muscle, uh, you apply a force to it, how well that muscle can resist to that external load. And in particular, and we're going to get more into the performance aspect of it in just a second. Uh, but when you look at stiffness and the mechanical properties of stiffness, uh, there's one thing is active stiffness. One, th one thing is passive stiffness. Mm. They're very different and they have a different role in athletic performance. So without going too much into physiology, but we know that like we can recruit our muscles. We can create tension by recruiting our muscles. And the more tension we create, the stiffer those muscles are going to get. So it's going, to, it's going to increase the active stiffness, so how well they can tolerate loading. And that's good. But there's also passive stiffness, which is how well those muscles can tolerate load without being active. So just what comes from the connective tissue around the muscles and within the muscle. Uh, what's, what's changing a lot nowadays is that um, if you look at research back like 10, 15 years ago, and we were associating the, 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 the idea of fascia, or connective tissue and muscles, we were mostly looking at the so-called sac and pec, serial elastic component and parallel elastic component. And that is, for the most part, the epimysium, perimysium, endomysium, all the fascia around the muscle and the tendons at each end, which is true. That's a major, major component in, in stiffness. However, now we have tools to look inside the muscle and look at other elements within the sarcomere that are not active, so they don't contribute to uh, force production but they do contribute massively to stiffness. And one of them is titan. It's a big protein within your muscle. It keeps the sarcomere together and it allows you to tolerate that load without deforming. Mm. Now, why is that so important? Because if you think about it, um, and that's pretty intuitive, but like any type of effort, any type of explosive activity requires a degree of effort in exerting force. You want to jump higher, you have to apply more force against the ground. No way around it. But if we find a way to create more stiffness, the good ones, the passive stiffness within your muscle tendon complex, 
you can then store more elastic energy and use that elastic energy to even increase more your power output when it comes to performance. And we know that we tend to study human performance in a vacuum, in a lab, but that's not how it happens on the field. You're not going to do one jump. You're going to come, you're going to uh, speed up, slow down, change direction. You're going to load your system constantly. If we can find a way to harness this energy and use it to produce more power, well, that's a win-win mm -hmm. because we're more explosive and we get more for what we put in. So it's a greater return on investment. And passive, passive stiffness, just it does just like that. If you can increase passive stif stiffness, uh, your muscle can store more elastic energy and use it to create power. So in my opinion, it's the foundation of athletic development. Whether that you use it to, to train plyometrics and with plyometrics to increase power or simply to make your athletes more reactive on the field of play, it doesn't matter, but you're increasing that capacity of tolerating load. And it becomes a little, and stop me if I go too much into so, details. So, I mean, it, it's really like the uh, initial stiffness while you're in like kind of a, um, like an un, unturned on state, I guess you could say. Yeah. So, so the capacity, it's almost like a container, how much capacity Correct. the muscle can take. Once you apply force, uh, the capacity, I guess, is maximized based upon like how much is created in like a passive state. Yeah. So that's the point. That's what was very fascinating for me. Like. You guys are familiar with the work that Verkozhansky did. Mm -hmm. And every time he used to describe the perfect technique for a drop jump, he always said like, you want to make sure that when your athletes are landing, their muscles are fully relaxed so that they can load the system and then jump. And mm -hmm. I never quite understood why. Like, I always was like, okay, why, why are you preaching that? Why, why that's what you want? What well, that has to do with active and passive stiffness. So if I look at active stiffness, so how much I activate my muscles, I want to minimize that as much as possible. Because if my muscles can face the load in a relaxed state, they can deform, so to speak, more and store that elastic energy. But I want to maximize my passive stiffness so that the, when that elastic energy is created, it's stored in the connective tissue and it can be reused. So the way I look at it, and that becomes a bit more complicated when it comes down to coaching, is active stiffness is very much motor learning. So it's being able to be comfortable with the task and have the proper amount, the proper level of coordination to be able to perform the task correctly. Whereas passive stiffness is a measure of capacity. Mm. It's like, and that goes end, end in end with like how strong you are. Sure. They're a measurement of capacity. Yeah. You can squat 500 pounds, but not be able to use that strength in, on the field of play. Well, I mean, that's because um, like there's this kind of intersection of strength and power. Yeah. And I always looked at power as your ability to display your strength dynamically. Yeah. And I, I met guys that were really strong but weren't very powerful. And I met guys that were not that strong but were extremely powerful. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, the analogy I always give for our athletes, especially when we're doing drop jumps, is like a punch. You know, you think about like a boxer, you know, really loose, bringing it out, bring it out, and then right before contact, they snap into like, uh, you know, a lot of stiffness to make the punch. Because if they just reached out like this, it wouldn't do anything. And if you were here the whole time, so that task-specific tension relaxed to be able to punch and snap the punch at the very end is the same analogy I give for, you know, the, the on the plyos and especially the, the depth jumps or drop jumps where they're relaxed, 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 and then they hit and have yeah. to rebound. Yeah. And I think it's uh, interesting to see the way I was able to increase stiffness, which is not my idea. It's just has been done in research before, but it's by using supramaximal eccentric training 
which is something that like the strength and conditioning community has put on the side for way too long. Well, not the, all of them. Not, not all of them. No, no, we, we use it. But uh, the problem is, is one, you need uh, competent coaches. You need a ton yeah. of technique because there's so much variance in technique. So you need a more advanced lifter. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. But yeah. I, I mean, we're firmly believing in the idea. Yeah, of, we'll, we'll get into yeah. how we can explore and apply from our garage gym perspective. But then... Yeah, so, I get a little nervous when you start talking about garage gym training by myself <laughs> and super maximal <laughs> eccentrics. Hey, that's our audience, baby. But yeah, yeah Antonio, continue on the, the super maximal, exactly what it is. And then, yeah, then we'll explain more on application. Yeah, so when, when we normally talk about like eccentric training without being too specific, we're looking at a type of training that is eccentric bias, which means that we tend to lengthen the time of the eccentric contraction uh, to create some sort of adaptation, most of times it's like hypertrophy because the common use of time under tension is to build muscles. Sure. So you're doing, it's isotonic training, so you can lift that weight back up. It's probably like 60, 70, 80% of your one rep max. You're just lengthening the time under tension during the eccentric to create more damage, more adaptation, more growth, and so forth and so forth. That's the common understanding of eccentric training. Is uh, is time under tension really, I mean, uh, um, Paul Quinn was a big time under tension guy, and there was a ton of research where everybody got real hyped into this idea of hypertrophy as relation to time under tension. But I mean, when the research I looked at talked about different rep ranges, yeah. um, as long as they were gone to mechanical failure, the hypertrophy was similar between three to five to you know seven to ten and fifteen reps. So I, I wonder if uh, you know time under tension has to match the load, like just excessive time under tension with a light weight. I don't know if it's going to necessarily drive the same hypertrophy as a heavier weight with less time. You know? Can I give you two answers? Yes. The polite one and my, my yes. answer, the politically correct one and then my answer. Okay. So politically correct is like, if you go by research, time under tension is important. When you look at hypertrophy, it's one of the main factors that dictates whether or not your muscles are going to grow. Uh, and that's, that's a fact. If I have to give you my answer based on my experience, and I hope I don't disappoint anyone, but I never once in my life measure time under tension in training and I got excellent results, uh, in terms of hypertrophy without even bothering about that. Because I think the benefit that you can get out of using heavier loads, if you can sacrifice time under tension in terms of the endocrine response, response that comes to training, so how much you can increase testosterone, how much you can increase growth hormone, way overpowered any time under tension. Dude, I- But that's have, my idea. Uh, I've found the exact same thing. And the reason being was um, for some reason, and uh, you know, when you look at the research, it kind of flies in this a little bit. I could tell a very distinctly um, the physical appearance of athletes that lifted over eighty-five percent and those that didn't, yeah. especially in the NFL. You know, I, I, I would go in and see guys train that never put heavier than three fifteen on a back squat, and they weighed three hundred pounds. Yeah. And then I saw other guys, and like you know, and they didn't necessarily lift heavy weights, and they, you know, uh, might have done it for more reps and felt that you know, hey, uh, you know a weight that I should be able to handle for, you know, maybe 15 reps and they get that. Whereas, yeah. you know, if I can handle 15 reps, I'm not, I mean, that's a warm up for me. You know, yeah. I'm looking for somewhere in that three to five, six, seven, eight reps at max. And the guys that I saw that lifted those heavier weights, dramatically different physical appearance than those guys that didn't. I talked about it years ago. I, I knew if a dude lifted heavy weights and a guy that didn't, I didn't give a shit about time under tension. And we had guys come train to us that were big Pollock guys. And they talked about time under tension. I'm like, I mean, if time under tension was the was the, uh, the holy grail you're talking about, why wouldn't we just lift to 50% and yeah. try to do it for two or three minutes straight? Yeah. 
And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't work like that. And then you get into, we had Fred Hatfield on talking about compensatory acceleration and activating white muscle fibers and the ability to generate force as being a greater determining factor for all these things. So I'm in your camp. I don't buy, <laughs> I don't buy the, uh, uh, I don't buy the, the company answer. I think there's some like in between where like, I have a solution for this. The principle based approach of the power athlete methodology, accelerated adaptation. Wow. So we're not, dismissing any research done we're acknowledging that hard work and uh typing that they had to do but then we have only so much time with our athletes sure. and we need to make the most impact with what tools that we know work yeah i mean yeah, I, I agree uh the um it's, it's pretty interesting like um we use a ton of uh, eccentrics especially with the vertical poles and the pull-ups we were doing it today with our athletes yes. in terms of like you know fatiguing neuromuscular pathways and then forcing them to do something dynamic as a way to you know, create strength and more importantly, get them to wire up a little bit faster. But um, I mean, we do a ton of like manual resistance. We do the eccentrics in that way. Like the neck one is a big one. We do a bunch of shoulder stuff too. So, I mean, it works into our program and we've always had it as one of the pillars within our program. Yeah, the representation of manual resistance would be a true isometric, meaning they're trying to isometrically hold, but the force is too great. And then we have a different application within our, uh, our form of application of triphasic training. Where we're we actually do. training, but what we're doing is we're actually training the at the end ranges. Uh, yeah, through but through the eccentric is still controlled, but it's with respect to dumbbells yeah. versus the we can't do a true eccentric in our garage gym setting training alone. Yeah. But then how Cal's doing it, he is doing true within his weight room because they got spotters. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're lifting a, you know, super max, supra maximal weight where now all of a sudden, like you take it out of the rack, you get into position and the weight is effectively smashing you, you and, and like stapling you to the ground. That's the truth. Kind of similar. True. Yes. Opposed from just, Hey, I can control like You were talking about an isotonic weight where now yeah. I'm at 60% and I can lift this weight. But yeah. now that's, I, I mean, we sound, I mean, and this is where you get into this balance of like, what can I effectively execute and what's the best? I mean, you know, we would do this pretty, um, one of the, the drivers I used to bench 500 was we would load up with 105, 107% and we would control eccentrics. Yep. And, uh, that was a huge driver for us. But then unfortunately we had a dude pop a peck. We had another Ooh. guy drop the weight. So, I mean, out of the five guys I was training with two of them completely imploded, um, two of them overtrained, and then I benched 500. So we, <laughs> out of the, you know, roughly we, we were about 20% fucking success rate. You're the banister, the four minute mile guy. You made it. Well, uh, but that's the thing. I mean, when you start looking at these training programs, I think that there's this interesting, or even any of these approaches, there's an interesting thing between like, what can I execute safely? And more importantly, like what's optimal and more importantly, what's the best. And I think that you have to try to like bring those into a Venn diagram and try to hit somewhere in the middle. Prudent. Yeah. I like that. But yeah, to uh, continue on that, like, how can you, what can you do if you want to eccentrically overload your muscles? You can either use speed to your advantage, which means that you're going to be lowering a weight that you can control at a velocity that is slower than what gravity would do, and that you can do that with 70%, 80%, 20% for all that matters. And that's a way of, like you said, probably create some adaptation, some hypertrophy, maybe early stage time under tension when you're with a beginner. Mm-hmm. And that's to me is the middle ground. Like if you're working with a beginner, maybe time under tension is important because you're looking at that neuromuscular control, they're learning the movement, there's early adaptation. But then I 
so, soon thereafter, I just stop worrying about time under tension. And yeah. as soon as you can lift heavy, lift heavy, hypertrophy will happen. What happens to the muscle uh, when you start talking about uh, super maximal eccentrics? Like, is there like, I mean, because I... Um, in, I'm not going to butcher. I'm going to attempt, but I, I did read a ton that they talked about remodeling of the tissue, and yeah. remodeling of the tendons and the connective tissues, and more importantly, like the muscle. Um, that's something I've always, and I was excited to have you come on to kind of discuss that because when we start talking about lifting heavy weights, especially when I was talking to the athletes today, the idea of like remodeling tissue is mm. something that like I find really exciting. Um, but on the cellular, on kind of like to be able to get into that a little bit and talk. Um, yeah, so what happens when you start, we said that we can increase, we can decrease speed, so slow down the movement, and that would be a way of doing eccentric, or you can do the true eccentric, you go above your capacity, so above one rem max. And that means that uh, I always ask people to envision that in like a real life type of application, like if you squat 100 kilograms and then you put 110 kilograms on, on the bar, as soon as you start bending your knees, that's way greater than what you can handle physically. So you can only slow it down. You can't really control it. The weight is going to push you down. And the heavier it gets, the harder it's going to push you down. So you can only fight against that weight. So what happens with your muscle is that you're technically trying to hold that position. So do an isometric contraction. But because the weight is so much more than what you can handle, that muscle is going to start lengthening under load. And you're going to try to drive more and more motor unit recruitment to try to slow it down. So it's the outermost level of stress that you can put on your system because the, the load wants to deform your muscles and you're fighting that. So there's a lot of, it's called disarray, like your sarcomere goes crazy and there's a lot of damage within your sarcomere, so the contractile component, but most importantly, there's a lot of damage in the connective tissue around and within it. Mm. And that damage is what create remodeling and adaptation. And that adaptation comes in one of two forms, either your connective tissue as a whole is thicker so you have more uh, collagen within and around the muscle, tendons are thicker, but also you have more tightening content within the muscle. Mm -hmm. And those filaments starts to align in a way that is more optimal for your muscles to be able to uh, face resistance from the outside. So like the form along the line of action of the muscle. Mm -hmm. So they align correctly and they get thicker. So you become better at tolerating more load. And that load, we always picture load in terms of a weighted barbell. Yes, that's one way of loading the system. Another way is kinetic energy. Mm -hmm. When you're on the field of play, sure. when you're doing a change of direction, when you're landing, when you're taking off, that's same, same type of load. It's just presenting in a different way. Well, and it's also, uh, you know, exponentially higher. Absolutely. I mean, you know, pe people are like, oh, I squat 500 pounds. And you think about sprinting, changing direction. Now you're talking about 300 pounds per Absolutely. square inch. And so, uh, like, that's where, you know, people are like, I'm strong, but I blew something up. And I'm like, yeah. uh, is there, um, is there a time window? Um, like, I think like there's gotta be a bunch of like hormonal, uh, nutritional, or maybe just some issues. Like, like, are the tissues going to remodel the same with the eccentric training as a, you know, 22 year old, you know, high level athlete opposed from like a 45 year old, um, hmm. you know, later in life guy, you know, dealt with some injuries and still training. And I wonder if like, there's a, a kind of a sweet spot. Um, you know, a lot of this, especially when we start looking at high level athletes, there's kind of a, a window for these guys, you know, that 22, 24, 26, 28, uh, window. And I almost wonder if there is a, like a delayed effect or, cause I mean, we, we still work with a lot of, you know, and I don't say older cause they're my age, uh, but people in their forties, um, that are still training, they're still going out and competing. And I wonder if there is, um, you know, a delayed effect or if it's agnostic of this and that the, the training will remodel tissue in the same way. 
That is a great question for, for which I don't have a specific answer because I've not, I've not done any research in the aging population. But if you think about the immediate consequence of eccentric training, there are two things that come to mind. First is that you will have more damage within your muscles, yeah. which means that if you want to first recover, second adapt to it, you need to be able to increase protein synthesis. Mm -hmm. So your tissue needs to be able to respond. And second, there's enough evidence to show that uh, eccentric overload alone, and that has been done in rugby players, so not even looking at weight training, just sheer eccentric load on the system, um, impairs the ability of your GLUT4 receptors to migrate from the cytosol of the cell mm -hmm. to the surface. So you're not gonna be able to uptake glucose that efficiently in the immediate post training time, 24, 48, 72 hours later. And if you combine those two together, so your muscles are, they need more protein synthesis, and they can't really intake glucose that well, that efficiently, those two things in and of themselves get worse with aging. Mm -hmm. So that process is slowed down by itself. So I would assume it would take you longer. It would be more difficult to adapt to supramaximally eccentric training mm -hmm. after the age of like 40, 50 maybe. Mm -hmm. But also I know that that can change with training age. Like if you've trained, if you're 50, you train for 40 years already, and your system is conditioned to tolerate that load, that might be different. But probably if you were to picture like a beginner, 45 year old, probably I would not recommend super yeah. maximally centric training rather than- Yeah, the shit will explode. Like rather yes. than popping. Um, that, uh, for just, many days, that yeah, it's, it's a good question to throw out because whenever we have these podcasts and you would bring on an expert like you and we throw out these ideas, people constantly, as they should, how does this affect me? Where should I put this in my training? Like we just had um, Tom Newman on. We discussed uh, the Tabata um, assault bike stuff. And I had got hit up by at least 10 different dudes. Hey, I'm trying to work this into the training. Where do I put it? And like my whole thing is like uh, try two. And if you get two, get four and kind of periodize into it over maybe four, six, eight weeks. Don't jump in and give me uh, 24 rounds of Tabata, you know, with a rest every after every. I mean, like the, the, the protocol would implode people if you hadn't done the work on the front side to get them there. That's, I mean, I can bike for 20 seconds, but then there's biking for 20 well, seconds. Well, I mean, as yeah. you saw today with, uh, you know, just six Tabata rounds we took with our athletes, those guys were fucking imploding. That and, was so cool, though. But, I mean, I'm also screaming in their ear, fighting them <laughs> to get everything. They get off the bike, and they know if they get off the bike, they're going to have to fight me and battle me. So, like, we've put it into an environment, um, uh, but it's really hard to push yourself like that by yourself. I Correct. mean, you've got yeah. to have somebody in your ear on you, on you. And we, you know, we measure the numbers. So, um, but yeah, I would say that if you don't have extensive training history and you're not already strong and you've done some of this work, I mean, we've been doing some form of force eccentrics for, you know, as long as I've been training. So, I mean, I just wonder if, um, like you said, glucose uptake and then also protein synthesis delayed as you age. So, yeah. I mean, those two factors probably play in there. And then also injuries with connective tissues and yeah. aging and, you know, lower, um, you know, androgen profiles, you know, obviously, oh, yeah. you know, make the uh, tendons and connective tissues more, uh, I guess it's fragile, but not as pliable over yeah. time. Nerd alert. Power Athlete Nation taking a break from this episode to let you know that Cyber Monday starts early. We've got major discounts on all courses, taking 25% off everything including new courses from Master Coach Derek Woodski and DPT Dr. Matt Zanis. Head to powerathletehq.com forward slash academy to see our full collection of courses designed to empower your performance and sharpen your blade as a coach. And now, back to our infotaining conversation with Antonio. 
And I mean, super maximal eccentric training sounds like very intimidating and scary, and it is demanding on the body. But like anything else, if you work your way up to it, it can be done safely. Like I ran my pilot with people that had never done super maximal eccentric training before. It took us about six weeks to build up to that, meaning starting with weights of like 70, 80, 90% of water max, increasing that time under tension during the eccentric, eventually make our way to the actual water max and work our way up from there to 130% of water max. And we had no issue the entire protocol. Mm. And these are not, they were not athletes. They were just recreationally Was this trained. Was done with free weights or with uh, machines? Good question. I had to do that with a leg extension. I was going to say. Because research yeah. constraints. Yes. Um, well, you have to make it uh, standardized. Yes. And the problem is there's so much variability in, let's say, any, t- any type of hinging yep. or knee bending movement with different anthropometrical ratios, techniques, torso lengths, injuries. Yep. So you have to have something that's probably one joint. And my, my, the reason for that is that I, I was going to go with a leg, extent, leg press machine, uh, which is closer to a compound lift-ish. But then, because my fourth aim is to actually take mu- muscle biopsies and look at tightening, I needed that load to be extremely concentrated, mm. extremely focused on just one muscle only or like a small number of muscle groups together. So the leg extension was the most suitable option for us. But if I could, I would do that with just a barbell back squat yeah. and just enjoy the ride, you know? Well, we can do anything. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's just so much variability. And like, yeah. I mean, like we're seeing working with the, with the guys we're working with, um, you know, finding like, um, and I know this is such a cheesy term, like the like their version of the perfect squat. Yeah. You know, and uh, trying to get everybody to, you know, the model where you're like, you know, we want positive shinning. I want the toes over the knees. I need the back set and all this. And what we found, especially we saw you guys checking out the Kabuki transformer bar. Uh, what's amazing about that bar is I can start adjusting the camber on the bar to find the perfect squat for each individual. Yeah, that's awesome. And instead of just kind of wedging them under a bar and trying to teach, it's, it's allowed us to like hack into something that took us weeks to try to fix. And yeah. uh, it's pretty amazing. So I, I feel really lucky that, uh, I mean... Duffin's a mad scientist with that thing for, for, for deal. So, um, well, the, the, the other one too is, um, did you look at any of the super maximal stuff using some form of accommodating resistance? Cause I know using bands, especially at the West side, that was what, that was a big part of their super maximal, uh, you know, any of their lifting, you know, they were using bands, especially trying to control the eccentrics brought on by the stored elasticity of pulling the band down. Yeah. I've done it on myself. So I'm very familiar with the method. I've never Even done better. it for research. Uh, I think it would be very cool to, because you know, when you, when you use elastic bands, at least if you look at research, like with the lenses of like a researcher, it's very difficult to quantify the load in a very accurate manner because chains, you know how much a chain weight, sure. weight you, you know, each ring, you can kind of quantify how much load you have. With elastic bands, it's a bit more difficult. Well, yeah, because you, uh, you know, different manufacturers, different oh, so rubber, many variables, different height, different this. I mean, you know, we would do uh, like we would set the, you know, the, the bands up on the bar and then weigh ourselves and weigh that and try to figure it out. But for every inch you went up in height, obviously it increased. Yeah. So I mean, there was all these variables. I don't. I yeah. I mean, I don't know how, even how you begin to quantify that. You potentially could quantify that using force plates. Mm. Uh, but that will add an, ex- an extra layer of complexity to the <laughs> well, then, study. Then you need force points. Yeah, which we do, but like it would make it that much more difficult to do a study, you know, like a, a true intervention study. But I don't see why we shouldn't be doing that. So maybe in the future we can take a look at that. Because yeah. I've done, I've trained with elastic bands for years and they suck. Like you, you feel it when you, when you use them, it's different. Yeah, the, um, I remember <clears throat> when we first went out to Westside Barbell, um, the you know we were I was talking to a bunch of guys uh, that were in their training groups, 
And one of the guys, this dude, Bull, I always remember this. He, uh, he made an interesting point. He said, uh, chains make people brutally strong. Um, the bands uh, make you extremely, like, uh, explosive because they're so hard on the nervous system. Yeah. So he talked about, like, the nervous system overload of the bands was almost too much where, you know, they ran into issues and then, you know, just the, uh, the brutal strength. So we were talking about training football players, and he liked the idea of using chains for what he called chaos theory was the idea that the chain was going to load as it went down. It was going to change the uh, dynamics of the bar in the bar pathway. And you had to constantly fight. Whereas like the neurological adaptation of the band pulling you down and trying to reverse it was just very hard in the nervous system. Yeah, it is. So I was like, Oh, that's uh it, it just changed the way I looked at this stuff, yeah. you know, cause we had always been into this idea of compensatory acceleration, you know, as mechanical advantage, so to speed and the bands and chains, I mean, as a way to teach it, but not necessarily as like the way that the guys at Westside were using it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, the way Westside was using band and chains was like very much driven by their own experience. And we know that, and I, I love them to that. Like I, I think plenty to recommend. Uh, however, if you then look at research, at least as far as I know, uh, on training with accommodative resistance, uh, it shows that if you were to train for strength or train for power, meaning you have two different performance outcomes that you're after. Uh, if you're training for strength, whether you train with just a loaded bar or part of, part of that load comes from chains, there's no difference. Mm -hmm. Like strength to strength, once you're above 80%, you're above 80%, it doesn't make that much of a difference. But when you train for power, meaning that chances are you're gonna be between 30 and 60% of your one rep max-ish, and part of that load may be coming from chains, mm -hmm. then using chains give you a massive advantage because it really forces you to generate that like long time of application of force against the ground. So greater rate of force development, greater power output. So chains really do have a benefit in developing power. Um, I don't even know where I'm going with this. Well, but no, no, yeah. I mean, the, and, and, the, and the one thing that nobody ever brings up is um, uh, when you're using that stuff or when you're using accommodating resistance, focusing on speeding up the accentuation phase yeah. so that you can effectively generate force out of the hole. And uh, I mean, that's one of these pieces when we start, you know, getting into training or watching videos or getting in, like I'm always focused on like a really fast, smooth accentuation yeah. phase. Can you transition between eccentric and, ton and concentric, not only, you know, extremely well without stopping and make it a smooth transition. And the people that do can generate a ton of force. If yeah. you go down and have to stop and then restart, it, it always like th those people are always diminished. So I, I know when I'm ever coaching anything and people send us a ton of videos on the programs or whatnot, but I'm always focused on that smooth accentuation phase. Yes, which I, I believe you're speaking to some of that, Antonio, when we talk about the, the passive capacity. Yep. And that it, it's, it's not at a conscious level. It's more, you know, within our structure that allows us to. And if, if we lead to a conscious accentuation phase, that's when it starts to get slow. Yeah. So being and allowing passive capacity how we utilize this on field strong especially is is in a triphasic block with the isometric so how we coach our athletes to get into an isometric it is loaded but then like a free fall drop into a bulgarian split squat we want your body to stop you so you're not stopping at the bottom of your range of motion with the isometric you're getting to where the position your body reacts and protects you. Yeah. So then it's like the same analogy on the punch. Like and that, and then that they, gives us direction as coaches to now see, okay, well that's essentially the bottom position and that's where we want to find our amateurization phase, the redirect, if yeah. you will. So it, it, it is coming together. I like these specific terms. I'm going to start to, 
to, to learn more about, which is awesome, passive capacity. And I mean, coaching the isometrics, it was a challenge in the beginning because yeah. people would just free fall to the bottom of the range of motion. We don't want that. Well, and, and where does your body stop itself? Is, yeah. um, I mean, um, when we were doing a ton of isometrics, we were usually doing them at top range. Like we would always finish, like especially at a heavy squat cycle with like 110, 115% and just do isometric holds at the top. Uh, actually Cal, the free fall, you know, and we got that when, uh, he came and taught for uh-huh. us at the, at the power athlete symposium, 2019, uh, talked about the, you know, the free fall to bottom end range isometric holds. So careful with that. So not the bottom end range. So that's well, where we got lost. Yeah. It wasn't bottom end range, but it was a bottom position where you were still active, mm-hmm. I guess is a better way to say it. But that was a interesting tweak to us. Because, uh, you know, uh, power athlete, I mean, for a lot of the my own training and stuff that we put out, it's always been PAP-based. We've always done some form of post-activation potentiation, do something heavy, do something dynamic. And then actually the triphasic aspect of bringing in focused muscle contractions was like another piece of that where I was like, man, we've always done controlled eccentric, smooth accentuation, violent concentric. Now by adding the isometric, we get another training block. And I think it's paid some really cool dividends. That's really cool. And just to uh, continue on the compensatory acceleration training, which is one of my favorite topics, there's once and this, um, like, let's say, like increased capacity, conscious or subconscious of be able to use that stretch shortening cycle. Yeah. There's a study out there published by Johns in 1999 um, who compared two groups of subjects uh, was upper body training, so mostly bench pressing. One group did traditional heavy strength training. The other group did uh, compensatory acceleration training with no chains or bends just the intent of yeah. lifting the bar as fast as possible on the way up. And of course, they saw a bunch of difference in terms of uh, performance outcomes. So the group that did CAT had greater power and more, more strength at the end of the block. But also what they did, which I think it was very cool, they did plyo push-ups on force plates with both groups. And they could look at the eccentric time, coupling time, and concentric time. And actually the group that did CAT shortened the coupling time so they were able to go from eccentric to concentric faster mm. without having done any plyometric type of work. Mm. Very cool. Just by doing that type of intent behind lifting. That's why I preach CAT to everyone. Like that I, should be the foundation of strength training. Uh, I was 14 years old, uh, trained in an old man Zangus' garage and he and uh, Fred Hatfield were friends and he started, but he described it different. I mean, we since have grown up and know about it, but he talked about being violent with the weights. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as the weight starts to get light, you have to pick up speed. I want you to break these motherfuckers. And it was joke was like, don't lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful. <laughs> I want you to be violent to the point where if you're training somewhere and somebody sees you lifting weights, they're going to come over and tell you to slow down. You might hurt or hurt the weights. And wow. Uh, it was, uh, you know, and it was, a. Uh, uh, and uh, for me at 14 years old, taking that and then all of a sudden going out and using it on the field where now I'm not going to punch a guy. I'm going to try to put my hands three feet b- uh, between them. And when I hit a guy, I'm aiming behind them to try to drive my head through them. And it, I mean, I, I really think that that little piece um, might have been uh, a huge player for me getting to play 10 years in the NFL. It's just I a middle class white kid from Torrance, you know. So I, like when people ask me, I'm like, ah, like I got to put it in the training. I mean, I obviously had a lot of, um, you know, genetic benefits, but like that piece in training, because when I talk to people about it, nobody ever knew about it. You know, when they, they would ask me, I'm like, yeah, um, you know, think compensatory acceleration, Fred Hatfield, and we'd used it for years and no strength coach, nobody. I mean, it wasn't until at the end of my career when I went out and I uh, hung with Louis Simmons and we started talking about it. And he, you know, was preaching it to his, to his athletes. And I was like, oh, fuck, you know, I've never heard an NFL strength coach bring this up. Yeah. And it's just because it was, you know, and um, 
Uh, Josh Bryant does a great job of keeping Fred's stuff alive and talking about compensatory acceleration, and Louis did too. But I feel like the people that are, you know, uh, the champions for this, it's kind of been handed to us, and we've been preaching this shit for as long as I can. I mean, oh, it's a principle. I mean, we talk about it constantly. And um, it's interesting to watch people on film when all of a sudden they'll send us a video and then we start kind of pushing it back and, uh, you know, the differences they make. I wonder if there's, um, like we talked about, like a, a changing within the muscle, like you said. I mean, you know, speeding up the accentuation phase in those push-ups. Uh, did they notice changes within the muscle? They didn't do any biopsy. So. But you know what's sad that, like, I'm completely with you. Like, catch compensatory acceleration training and other stuff that belongs to the past, so to speak, is good and should be used. Yeah. But it's still, for the most part, unknown to the larger community of coaches because they don't teach that in school. Yeah. There's not enough evidence for the scientific community to make worth their time to teach that in school. So they don't learn about that. Wow. And they, will go, they go on the field and they work as a strength and conditioning coaches. They've never been exposed to that before. And that's a shame because well, there is evidence to support these things and it should Fred be taught. Uh, you know, Fred Hatfield's book, Power, I mean, uh, it's, it's laced in there. I mean, I just wonder if... Um, and. and we run into this a little bit. Like we were, uh, you know, had a great uh, chat with Tom Newman. We were talking about the uh, Husker power, the metabolic conditioning cycles, which, you know, like people don't even remember, or we were also rapping about Marvin de Pasquale and the anabolic diet. Oh yeah. You know, the father of metabolic diet. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, people don't know about that either. Yeah. And so we're, we're trying to pull back a little bit because I use these things, you know, when I was early in my training and they work fucking great. And then the problem is, is that, well, this, this is the beauty of, Power Athlete Radio and the opportunity. So we had Fred Hatfield. You got the opportunity to sit down. Yeah. And then Oscar uh, his, Power himself. His final interview with That's Fred Hatfield. That's massive. Yeah. yeah. And Louis Simmons' final in, in, interview. I feel like. And Boyd Epley. Like, he's still rocking he's John. I, dude, I uh, I feel like a little bit of the Grim Reaper that. Don't uh, you say that. No, <laughs> don't you put that on me, Ricky Bobby. No, I mean, uh, I am forever grateful that we got a chance to visit with two of the, the pillars in Absolutely. strength, conditioning, and performance and strength. Um, you know, and I was able to call them friends and have a relationship, and we got a chance to wrap with them at the end, which. Uh, uh, I didn't get a chance to talk to Zangus. Um, I'm really sad on that one. I got a chance to have my dad on Power Athlete Radio. So um, I think the problem is, is or what's been amazing, I think, with this idea of podcasting and all this, like books collect dust, but these things are living and breathing. Yeah. And you know, once they're out there for posterity, they're out there forever. Well, and it's the beauty of it's not just us reading a research and then accepting as fact. We get the opportunity to speak to you and let your research get into context and truly come to life for then a coach to apply it. Yeah. So that was the beauty of those interviews. And that's what we really, I mean, that's the awesome thing. Yeah. You, you're, you got a great personality. It's not like any other researcher we know. <laughs> fucking nerds. But, uh, well, he's Italian. I, thank mean, you. Uh, I don't think you can be a wallflower. In Italy. I don't think you can be a nerd. I mean, I all know. the Italians, we know, are usually pretty good natured guys. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know? uh, so like we're, I mean, we're talking about this idea of stored elasticity I and mean, we're talking about compensatory acceleration. And I know Texas got VVT written up on there on, on your deal. I mean, how do these things all come into play? Um, I mean, these are all like, like I feel they're all principles that are related to each other. Like it's impossible to do velocity. It's, it's not impossible, but velocity based training, when you add compensatory acceleration to it, makes it so much more meaningful. Yeah. I think that's a very good question. I think the problem is we have so many different tools that we can use. Look at like just general strength training. We can do barbell lifting. We can do VBT. We can do eccentric. We can do cat. Put chains and bands and all different type of things. 
and they all seem to be some, they're working in some capacity. It depends on how, how well you apply them, but they, they work. The, I think the problem is when people just pick one of these tools and they just run with it and that's all they do. And that's all they preach and that's all they use in their training. That becomes a little disturbing and deviating and changes the perspective on what the true strength and conditioning approach should be, which is using all these tools in synergy to have better results. All these tools have, ultimately, they have a different impact on the athlete, which means that they may be a little bit more, more or less specific in the way they create adaptation, but they also come with a certain amount of workload and stress and effort, so to speak. So there's a time and place to use certain tools in the off season when the athlete is more fresh and they can recover better. Other tools that are a little bit more gentle, like VBT, for instance, where they're more like concentric bias, there's less eccentric overload, you can save some volume, those are great for the in-season. So yeah, I think it's more, more about like being flexible, knowing them all very well, and know which one belongs where, and use them at the right time, rather than trying to either A, use them all, and that becomes a big mess because you have so many variables, you don't even know which one is contributing to your results, or using only one and just stick with it. Yeah. I think that flexibility is like what makes a difference between an okay coach and a very good coach. Mm. But I want to say one little thing about like Louis Simmons and uh, other people like Mark Crypto and so forth and so forth. Uh, I was with the NSA with Lifting SIG for five years as a chair. And part of my duties were to like engage people on, this, on social media, so Facebook for instance, right? And we had a group and I was often po posting things about Louis Simmons or um, Fred Atfield, uh, Mark Crypto, other big names from like past in the industry. And I was getting so much insulted by other people. Why do you even listen to these guys? Like, they never published a paper. They don't know what they're talking about. Oh, from, from the uh, From the NSA community, oh, yeah. Okay. Like, really trash. Like, pr private messages, emails. Like, why do you post Mark Crypto on a Facebook page? And I said, like, guys, we have a job because of these people. We're strength and conditioning coaches today because those people paved the way for us to have a job. Sure. Show some respect. Yeah. Those people were there where science they didn't even care about strength and conditioning. And they did it. They made athletes stronger. They did it their way. You might agree or disagree, but you need to show some respect. And it drives me crazy when like, oh, they never published a paper to nobody. Yeah. Well, they were in the weight room for 30, 40 years, yeah. developing athletes that went on and played professional. Yeah. Whereas most of the research that we deal with on a daily basis, they, they themselves never trained. So like, there's a huge discrepancy, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just hurts my feelings when I see people just trashing old school stuff because it's old it's not backed up by research it worked yeah why why don't they train like that why don't they take an interest uh, who, in the application who was uh, uh rip's mentor uh that wrote uh the strong shall survive is bill star yeah bill star great book yeah i mean that was the uh like the bible I amazing mean, book yeah, amazing and and uh bill star i mean incredible writer I mean, uh, the premier, I mean, really like, you know, we talk about Boyd Epley being really the first strength coach. I mean, Bill Starr would be in that same conversation. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, that book was so important and, you know, that was Rip's mentor and, you know, what Rip, uh, really contributed for me was in, uh, the basic linear progression, Yeah, you know, using that linear progression and understanding that an unadapted nervous system can follow a linear progression because of the idea of inter and intermuscular coordination and the lack of rate coding and all the other stuff that gets into real jiggy. But because they're that unadapted nervous system is firing or is firing and working its way to wire up that you can effectively sneak on load with the linear progression and, uh, you know, the scientific, scientific explanation for why the linear progression works in that beginner phase. Um, 
I got from Rip. And uh, we went up. I mean, we talked for hours on this, and we actually use it in our program with Bedrock because it is the single best way I've found to get beginners really strong, yeah. like brutally strong. And then once they get done, it ends, and we move to more advanced training. I, I agree. But there's like a simple, basic, brutal. And, uh, you know, when I asked Rip one time, I was like, hey, did you get this from Bill Starr? And he's like, no, I didn't. <laughs> and he got all insulted that I somehow was like he was hacking. And I'm like, hey, man, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that just adds to validity. But Rip was, you know, talked about the linear progression and Milo's bowl and like, you know, Milo was little, the bull was little, he got bigger. Yeah. And uh, it's been um, one of the coolest parts because when people started asking me about program, it had been so long since I was a beginner. And the beginning training I did was so awful in yeah. a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, it was nothing but single doubles and triples and like this. I mean, it, 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 like there wasn't enough volume for me to effectively learn the movements as fast as I, I should have. So I didn't have enough opportunity. So I, I had enough wherewithal to know that the way that I did it didn't make sense. Um, but there was a lot of other intrinsic lessons that I learned, uh, in those training days. So I knew what not to do. So I had to go out and look and find what, what's the fastest way to get somebody up to a training, uh, exposure that allows me to do the more advanced stuff I want yeah. and the basic linear progression we got from Mark. Um, and we do an adaptation of it for us, um, has been proven the world over. Like I don't need a research paper yeah. to prove it. I mean, cause we have tens of thousands of, of subjects that can stand up and, and attest to it. I think you said something important. You learn what not to do. You've been there, you've done that, you've practiced it, you've learned it from your experience. People that learn from textbooks don't have that type of understanding of the true nature of the training process. One thing is reading a book, one thing is reading in, like doing that in real life. They're two different things and people that have only experienced one of the two sides of the spectrum, they shouldn't be interfering with the other. Like, let the researchers do research in a lab if that's what they want to do, but then don't go and preach how to do strength and conditioning if you have never trained yourself or being a strength and conditioning coach. Well, I mean, we, we were discussing Nicholas Romanoff, yeah. and uh, one of the things that Dr. Romanoff, when we went to, I remember we were down in San Diego for a meeting with CrossFit, and we went to breakfast, and um, it was amazing uh, because the or one of the biggest things I pulled away from him is uh, to be a master sports scientist in Russia, University of Moscow, behind the Iron Block. You had not only uh, had to present your you know your program and your idea and what you were going to do, but you had to take an athlete on their journey and have them win either a gold medal, a world title, a championship, something. And that was the only way you got your PhD signed off and you were you know doctor so and so. Yeah, was that you had to take an athlete on the journey? And he said that the uh, you know, the room was full of intelligence sports, you know, sports scientists that were never able to take an athlete that and never got the doctor added to their name yeah. um, because they, you know, and that was the deal that there has to be a blending of research, practical and taking an athlete, the physical on this journey and being, you know, their coach helping them. Yeah. And I think that was something that we looked at. I mean, we work with a ton of people. It's nice to be working with athletes and, and be able to take them on that journey and give them something and see them perform at the highest level. I think that's the only way you consider yourself to be an expert. True. I agree very yeah. much. So, yeah. So, I mean, that was a, uh, that was, it was extremely impactful for me where now all of a sudden you listen to people that want to cast stones that don't train any athletes. And I'm like, well, and then you have a whole bunch of people that just train a bunch of athletes, but yet adhere to no science. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, and then they just play the, the copycat game where I saw so-and-so doing this. So now I'm just going to do a worse yeah. version of it. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training.
And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq. And now back to the show. Yeah, crazy. Well, young coaches, they two two comments on this. One coach, they got to learn. And sometimes yeah. learning comes the hard way. One yeah. of their athletes or themselves has to get hurt before they see the light. But then they got to humble themselves like a yes. young Chris McQuilkin. As the example. But then the second point I was going to make, I am blanking on. Um, but yeah, some, yeah, they have to learn. Sometimes it comes with an injury. Uh, the, the other thing is they also need to look through a lens. Like they need a filter to look through. And the filter needs to be their athlete's goal. Uh. So what is my athlete training for? Going back to that. So if I am looking at research that's done on endurance community, but I'm training power football players, power athlete, I can't necessarily take that endurance and apply it to my athletes unless my athletes' goals change over time. Yeah. So if I'm just taking research and trying to cram it all in to give to my athletes without a filter, then we're going to have problems. So it needs to be related and reverse engineered from said goal. Yeah. See, that's yeah. a said pun. Well, um, the one, I mean, I'll, it's pretty interesting for me, like the, uh, the 24 year old high level athlete opposed from like the, you know, the 45 year old, you know, uh, aging athlete. There's some things that I've found. I mean, one is I have to personally give a lot more attention to building an aerobic base. Like when I was those kids, when I was young, like fucking build an aerobic base, talk about fucking waste of time. I'm going to sprint as fast as I can and rinse and repeat. But then as we kind of age, you know, we lose that mitochondrial density. And now all of a sudden, you know, like a big aerobic platform is really extremely helpful for me in terms of maintaining muscle and strength. Whereas I don't think I needed to do that early on. Yeah. So, I mean, there's been like, uh, you know, and this is where we get into this discussion with people is like, who's the athlete? Where is he at in his training? How old is he? What does his training currently look like? And then you kind of take all these variables and try to find the perfect. And what are they training for? And what are they training for in yeah. a situation like you know, like there's a million things that we would love to do, but if you don't know how to lift a barbell and the limiting factor is just time under tension or reps or opportunity, then like we can't move to more advanced training because you don't have the foundation for me to effectively do it well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's where I can get on a high horse and those coaches are being selfish. Like they're not taking those things into consideration and they're interested in this type of training, whether it be chains, bands, velocity, Olympic weightlifting, and they want to apply it to their athletes. And it's not the best tool. And in the back of their mind, they know it. But Intrinsic they, bias. They yeah. want to do it. Yeah. They want to, they want to find the research approval for their own ideas. Mm. They're biased because they already think it's working. And they just want to find that in research. And that's cue the way they look at data and they apply their programs for sure. Yeah. I mean, it should be, you know, like uh, you have all these variables, all these tools in the toolbox. You have to find the right one for the athlete at that right moment and apply it. And I think that's yeah. where we've done well, where, you know, I'm not agnostic or tied to anything. Me neither. Uh, I just want to add the athlete to perform and I have all these tools and we have all these different, uh, you know, levers we can pull. So it's just a matter of finding what's best for them. It, yes. Regardless and, of my ego. And the fun, the fun comes when sport coaches apply constraints and then you're forced to get creative, but you still have your purpose in mind. And then you have to change the practicality. A quick example, say we want to separate our freshmen from our upperclassmen that have been through a linear progression. But then the head coach says, no, I want all my guys training together. Okay, so how can we get creative applying this? Maybe I can organize my racks as freshmen during that time. But then the coach says, no, we need to practice leadership. I want oh, a senior wow. at each rack. So now I got two different programs in the rack. So how do I linear progress? 
and we can work within cards and different things. So sure. it's that's where the true fun begins. And then we add the mix and the stress of my athlete's life and everything that's going on inside. And then the extra work that they're doing, whether it's practice or family and X, Y, Z. So that's where, I mean, we can add layers and levels to this coaching game. It's not just the program on paper. It's how are we applying said program to then get the result that we're looking for and then go back to the drawing board and just what we need to. And I hate coaches that then blame the athlete. Yeah. Oh, they didn't do my program correctly. Fuck you. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah fuck you is exactly. Um, when you first theorized and started doing your PhD work and you're coming to the end of it, is there anything that you were dying on the sword early on that now all of a sudden towards the end of it, you found either not be true or some pivot or anything that, uh, you know, cause I mean, I, I know when you sit down to do your PhD, there's an idea of, Hey, this is what I'm going to work on. This is the thesis this is what I'm going to write. And now that you're kind of at the end of this, any pivots, any changes, anything that you were like, man, I knew <laughs> this great it's question, not, John. not to be true. It's a great question. Um, and I think, and that's just my personal experience. I'm not assuming that that works for everyone, but I stepped into my PhD program and with the idea of doing research and uh, my idea of doing research hasn't changed at all since day one, because I had designed my research idea based on my experience of the previous 15 years working on the field. Mm -hmm. So in those 15 years, I changed a lot of point of views on a lot of things. I thought certain things were going to work that ended up not working. I ended up changing my way of doing strength and conditioning quite a bit over time, but because I invested that time up front on the field working and creating my own protocol, ex experimenting with it, using it, seeing the results. By the time I got, I got a chance to be in a lab and doing that for research, I knew it was going to work from the, from the very beginning. So the PhD program itself didn't really change much of the way I look at um, science and evidence-based practice, but I did change a lot over the last 15 plus years that I've been doing this, jo this, work, this job. And that has been mostly through failure. Like I was pretty much set on a lot of principles or beliefs that I thought they would work. Like what? Um, Give me an example. The biggest one, oh, I have one very specific one. The biggest one was training volume. That was probably the single most abused variables in my first years of training. So you uh, thought you could just throw junk volume in there to keep driving adaptation and yeah, then you realized uh, that that's not the case? Because I was an athlete myself and I was... If you ask me to be in a weight room for an hour, I want to be there for three hours. If you ask me to come one day a week, I want to come five days a week. If you have practice, I want to go to the weight room before and after practice. I was that type of, of person. And because it worked for me when I was an athlete, that doesn't mean they're supposed to work for everyone. And I was young and I didn't know what I was doing, so whatever. But that kind of shaped my early approach to periodized training. And I just was doing way too much, way too often, and that often led to either overtraining or even just emotional or mental burnout for athletes because it was just too much going on. And if I look at the early training programs that I was using uh, in college and I, and I look at the training programs that I'm, work, I'm writing now for a few athletes I still work with, I think my volume now is probably like, I say like maybe 10% yeah. of the volume I used to do. Like I came down a lot. Yeah. And it, that has to do with like, the just individual sets and reps, I'm doing less and I'm looking at more quality, like I'm putting in some VBT. Because what VBT does for me, the only reason why I use it, or the, the main reason why I use it, 
is that it ensures me there's quality in every single rep. Mm. So every rep drives adaptation. So instead of having to do 12 reps, I can do six reps, but they're all equally good and I'm going to get the same, out of, same type of adaptation out of it. So that allowed me to cut down some volume. Um, I've been working more on less volume per session. So each session I can repeat the same movements and that drives more motor learning, better quality outcome. And the volume is distributed over a longer period of times. So that has been the, probably the biggest change in my entire career. Mm-hmm. How to handle volume in a way that is more efficient and puts less stress on the athlete. Because at the beginning, again, I loved, I loved lifting. I was addicted to lifting from day one. And I think I overestimated the importance of strength training for athletes. Mm-hmm. Like I thought like, no matter what sport you play, you have to be five days, in a, in a, five days a week in a weight room lifting weights. It's probably not the case. Sure. You know, like so, some athletes benefit a lot from resistant training. For some other athletes, like training twice a week is enough. Sure. Like they, they can handle and they can actually become better athletes just by doing that. So that had kind of like readjusted the way I go about strength training and that's changed a lot. Yeah. Well, the, uh, uh, the athletes we're working with are cutting into our training time. So I've had to actually space out my training to every other day. Yeah. And now I do a full body kind of deal where it's like a one set, you know, like I'll hit some uh, feeder sets and then like one set to failure kind of a deal and kind of playing with like a full body every other day. And what's been wild is that it goes like, you know, three days a week and then four days a week and it kind of changes up and allows some variability on the training days. Um, And it's a fun program. Yeah. So like it, but it's really kind of like, uh, I think you can either like the, the analogy I gave to somebody, it's like, you know, if you're trying to like hammer metal, for example, you can either hit it really hard three or four times or you can hit it in like kind of hard, maybe a hundred times. Uh, but what's, you know, like, and maybe probably get the same result, but if your time is short and I only got a few minutes to hit this thing, I'm going to try to hit it with everything I got. Yeah. I got a quote, Bill Walsh here. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. Show me the guy that can jump 10 feet one time, not the guy that can jump one foot 10 times. And I will will him to repeat it. So that's like the uh, Bruce Lee, uh, you know, don't fear the man with 10,000 kicks. Fear the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. Yeah. Probably the same. Wow. Bill, I should write this down. (laughs) Oh, that's a classic (laughs) fucking uh, Bruce Lee quote. Bill Walsh was 49ers coach and Jerry Rice, uh, Joe Montana. I'm a 49ers uh, fan. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dude! Freaking Christian McCaffrey was just traded to the Forty uh, ers Dude, can you imagine how excited? <laughs> you imagine excited he was? Oh yeah, <laughs> good imagine, for him. Yeah, that he gets to go from the Panthers to the Niners. Yeah. So, uh, you imagine waking up and be like, "I got traded." Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's had some ton of injuries, though, hasn't he? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, he got David Card for a lot. We just got no offensive line, and you get beat up, and but he's still he's still a freak. Yeah, no, he's uh, he, he definitely trained at a high level. Didn't he train out in Denver with... Oh, uh, yeah, Lauren Landau. Lauren Landau, that's right. Talk about genetics, geography, and opportunity. Yeah, his dad. Yeah, no, wow. that's badass. Mm-hmm. So so the uh, the major one was uh, junk volume, just too much volume. Is there... Um, how do you go about finding the perfect amount of kind of volume cadence for each athlete? I mean, are there anything you do for uh, testing, you know, um, I don't know, HRV? I mean, uh, we used to use uh, those torquemeters where we mm-hmm. would test grip. I'm wondering about, like, how do you approach it in terms of, like, figuring out what, like, the optimal training frequency and maybe training volume too much, too little is? Do you, uh, Or the VBT is another one? Yeah, I don't use a lot of VBT for, uh, like, athlete readiness uh, scores. But I do use, um, I do two different type of tests and with a few athletes that I'm still working with and these are like elite level athletes so they compete, like two of them as skiers. So when they start competing, they have competitions back to back 
for like a month and a half straight. So very high volume of competition time and handling and fitting in the training sessions in that packed schedule is very difficult. So I actually had their coaching staff purchasing a jam mat and a high variability monitor. So what I'm looking at is RSI, so peak reactive strength index, jump height in a counter movement jump and high variability. Mm. And I do that daily. So I baseline them. I look at one standard deviation. Sometimes I use a coefficient of variation just to be more flexible. But I look at the trend and I simply play around with that. Like I, I know that I can control what they do in their practice because it's not my job. Sure. But I can control what they do in the weight room. So I give them a certain workout that I think it's appropriate for them. And I don't guess if it is or not. I just look at their data 24, 48 hours after, see how their body responds. If I think they can tolerate more, I push more and then retest again. And I got to the point that now, like, I can predict to the point where their HRV would be in a matter of 24 hours. Mm. But because I'm, not because I'm good, I just, I've done it so much that like, once you see a trend, that trend is probably gonna be there if nothing major changes, so I can predict it better. And all I do is um, three drop jumps, three counter movement jumps, and our variability, that's all I use. Mm -hmm. And that has been enough for me to, to track, not just volume, but frequency, exercise selection, because you know, like, it's not just about volume. I can get a lot of volume hammering down on power cleans all day, or the same amount of volume doing loaded jumps with 10 pounds, you know, like it's, it's about exercise selection and what velocity they're moving and uh, nutritional variables that come into play. So there's a lot to consider. But I feel like when you can standardize your approach to a point where at least your own part of the intervention becomes predictable because you have a method to your madness, then if you look at the training data, you can be more precise in the way you, you program around your athletes. And one more thing that I also changed a lot over the years, if you were to ask me what my two major indicators of athletic talent are, back in the days, I would have said strength and speed, at least for a strength and conditioning coach, not for like a sports coach. Nowadays, I would change that to power and endurance because I've learned that, well, first of all, power is way more important than strength, and I think we all agree on that. Sure. But it was a barber head at the beginning, so all I cared about was like a big one that max on the squat. I changed that. Um, but I also very much underestimated a lot the importance of aerobic capacity because mm. I always associated aerobic capacity with running or running marathons. Well, I just associated with people that were slow. <laughs> like, like yes. just kind of like, like, I mean, it's like, so uh, true. Uh, but, but then you, you watch those Kenyan runners and those dudes are running like, you know, 26 back to back four minute miles. Yeah. I mean, they're fucking sprinting. Like yeah. it's like a dead sprint. Yeah. It's insane. But it was like you, I associated yeah. it with slow people, yeah. you know, slow athletes. But then what I realized over the years, especially when I start testing VO2 and actually have a metric to go and use that they didn't have to have like a 60 VO2, like a 45, 50. Yeah. Keep going. 50 was enough, but um, when I was able to create that foundation of aerobic power, their ability to, to tolerate load in the weight room changed and on the field of play changed so they because, could recover better. Yeah, it, it, it reduces the amount of recovery yeah. in between sets, so it was a higher output, higher quality. No, we found the exact and same thing. And when I saw that yeah. with data, showing me like, okay, the variable that is changing is VO2, and that is affecting everything else they're doing in the weight room, and I can, I mean, I've done that with weightlifters. Weightlifters don't do much conditioning, but still improving their VO2 got me to be able to do so much more volume yeah. and the number of reps and sets they could do at VBT was, was growing over time. Uh, their quality reps per workout was growing over time. It was just a, like, I would never go back to like the old methods, you know, like yeah. at least two sessions of conditioning a, weeks, a week. No matter who you are, you're going to do them. Yeah. 
Yeah, building off that, just the the purpose. I, I go to a battle a lot with sport coaches when it comes to conditioning and then help our coaches when they have to face these same things. So reverse engineered the big fight into three purposes for condition, like, or they're not in good enough shape or they're getting tired. The fourth quarter shape, we need to do more, but then more, uh, it, it does take away from, you know, weight room time and other things we know. So then why do we do this? It comes down to camaraderie, right? Team building. And then and now I'm stealing more time for the weight room away from stupid team building. Like I've seen some stupid stuff over the years. We all have, we can't, yeah. I won't even get into it. But if the purpose is camaraderie, well, we can utilize conditioning for that versus some other stupid stuff. I agree. The, um, then coachability, right? As, as John, you displayed this morning with our dudes, you put them in a very distracting f- fatigue state and then you try to fuck them up a little. I've tried, I've tried to fuck them up. It was actually great, dude. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you were watching, but uh, when a rash got off, he squared to me so we could fight. Uh, Victor turned his back to me and tried to walk away and I fucking snatched him up and I got saw him that. in like a good body lock and he couldn't get out. I which saw is, that. So, and which, you're having which is them funny. I mean, say their name yeah. and, and they, give they have them. to spell their names. They, uh, uh, we're going to get into, um, uh, add uh, addition, subtraction, multiplication. So I have a whole like process. So the next time we do it, they're going to expect me to go get them and I'm just going to hit them with uh, math problems. And this, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, this is going to play out during competition yeah. because now he's going to be fatigued and he's, he's going to be switched on and he can hear his coach give direction and help him improve during performance. So that's a good point in conditioning. Yeah. When I was in Finland on that point, I went there for the Javelin World Championship that is in Finland every year. I went there for three years straight. And I was spending time in their swimming pool just to see how they were coaching their athletes. Their coaches, at, so there was one coaching time in them, and another coach was at, at the end of the swimming pool holding math problems. The swimmers had to come to the end of the swimming pool, read it when they were turning around, go back, come back, and give them the answer. Then there was another one, so they had to think while they were swimming, yeah. and, and that was so fascinating. I, I love cool. that. Well, I mean, uh, uh, it's really um, what we do in football. Because I mean, you know, like, let's say, um, you know, we're in the middle of practice and you're on like, you know, you're going to run 10 plays, uh, your ability to process the information, the quarterback giving you the play. Now, all of a sudden I walk up to line, somebody makes a call. I assess, I know what my job is. I know what everybody's deal is. And we're in a most, you know, fatigued state and you're having to make, you know, decisions and executing in this state and, you know, and then at the snap of a ball go at a hundred miles an hour. So the thing that I realized with these guys pretty early on is the fact that, you know, um, I don't know what's coaching. I don't know if, how fluid it is or this, but their ability to be able to conscious while they're in a fatigue state, yeah. I mean, just makes it that much better. I agree. So, yeah. And applying that purpose and you're doing a great job and th- these guys will benefit. It will show up. And it's, uh, you know, having, the, the, the coach there to hear it and see what you're doing, hopefully he can start to pick up on that. And the, the final piece. Well, what, what's kind of funny is Shandy's her coach, but, uh, um, and. He's doing great bodybuilding. In the no, corner, well, he, awesome. he is. I, I got him on a bodybuilding program. But what's wild, and this is maybe, uh, we come from a different place in these individuals where if, uh, if I was coaching athletes, um, I would be, you know, like, uh, I would have to talk to the strength and conditioning coach and be like, okay, tell me about this. So when I basically, he's like, oh, you know, when you train him, how's he going to, and I laid it all out. He's like, sounds amazing. I don't know what any of that stuff is. Yeah. And it's because that isn't the, you know, those guys don't come from an SNC background where I think like if, if I'm coaching offensive linemen and I'm taking him to a guy or I have a strength coach, like I want to be like, how, like, 
tell me how you're going to lay this out. What does the training look like? Tell me about the volume. When, you know, what, what are you doing for this? Like I would be a lot more involved, but then also it's nice to have somebody be like, uh, enough people called and told me you were the fucking expert, which is funny. Cause he did. He's like, man, I, I posted a picture that the guys were coming and I got like 20 people reached out to me like, holy shit. Like that, I mean, that guy's fucking legit. And I'm like, well, that's good. At least he trusts us enough. Uh, yeah. So, well, and, 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 and to know that one, um, because we're former athletes, we put the athlete first. Like that's a big wow. thing where I think some strength coaches or maybe other people have never played at a high level. So they don't understand really the intrinsic deal where like at the end of the day, like we, we have what we want to get done, but never at the expense of the athlete. Absolutely. Like, like they can't get hurt. Like their, their deals competition. They're not winning fucking medals and money in the weight room. So then we have to prepare them for what's out there. And then also, you know, the sympathy of like, man, I've fucking been there. Believe me, I've been in exactly where you're standing and I know what it takes. Trust me, just fucking get on the train and we'll go. Yeah. And being excited for them of what's ahead. Yeah. Just trust the process, brother. Yeah. Uh, the, the final piece in argument, and this goes back to what you were saying, Antonio, with the VO2 max is decreasing that recovery time between your maximal velocity efforts. Yeah, right? for sure. Mean velocity, meaning, you know, third quarter, fourth quarter will never be as fast and as fresh as the first, but I still need the uh, the mental attitude and the effort. And this goes to measuring your conditioning. It's not just logging miles or saying, all right, for 10 minutes at the end of practice, we're going to condition. No, 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 no. I'm going to measure my progress. Like we're going to do a four to one rest work. Yeah, rest to work ratio. And we're going to work our way back down to a one-to-one as we get closer to season. So then it's introducing the the purpose and then showing the sport coaches how you're going to progress them. So it's, it's, it's ticking the box of everything, why they want to condition, why they want to build a team for all this. Man, I've seen a lot of stupid stuff at the college level outside of the weight room for team building that then negatively affects performance and has cost some, some athletes time on the field. So helping build this in. And then bringing in, if they are a, a research-based person, like the, the, the showing the VO2 max, like if I could measure that, I'm all in. But I, I'm, I'm in high school, I can't. What, but. what would be your two or three go-to uh, for increasing VO2 max? I mean, there's a, um, I've read conflicting research that talked about that uh, you know, you're born with a VO2 max and maybe at best you can improve by 5 to 7%. I read that one. And then I read something that said completely different. That, you know, what you do early on in your training, if you do, uh, you know, they talked about um, uh, setting the metabolic aerobic system early on. Like, uh, I think they, t- they looked at like girls and boys that were like high level swimmers that swam a ton, had like higher VO2 maxes and were more trainable later in life. So, I mean, there's really, uh, I mean, I've, I've read so much about VO2 max uh, that I left with feeling like none of it was conclusive. So, I mean, you brought it up. I'm sure you have a stake to drive in on yeah. this. So, I, I, I hope my answer is not disappointing. Though. Uh, I, have, I have three pillars, and they're pretty straightforward. And I want to I preface them by saying that um, this is not what I would recommend anyone to do for conditioning in a sport. Like if you're working with football, you're working with basketball, you probably can create a ideal work to rest ratio based on your GPS systems or whatever type of data you get out of practice. That's great. I'm looking at what I do as a strength and conditioning coach on the side. So what I do is what I develop as my own system is one type of steady state type of cardio, which is maybe like 20, 30 minutes of running or biking but at a very specific heart rate. So not just go out and get a, do a jog, you know, like a very specific 
training zone. And that's one. One type of interval training, and that interval training is usually done in the at that like length of time where you produce lactate, you need to learn how to buffer and handle that. Mm-hmm. So it's never just short and fast. You never get complete rest. It's just enough to be painful but manageable. Mm-hmm. And those are the two main ones. The third one, which I adopted maybe like five or six years ago, and to me personally has given me the greatest change of all, was doing either one of those in a fasted state. Mm-hmm. So after, and for fasted state, it's either without having food for 12 to 16 hours, or if that's not manageable, at least without having carbohydrates for 12 to 16 hours. Mm-hmm. That has driven the level of adaptation to all another, all another level. And it's painful. It has to be done in a way that is called intensity matched. So like I can't expect them to do their best interval training session at the same intensity if they're fasted. I need to bring it down a little bit, mm-hmm. but forcing them to do that in a way that, in a condition where they lack energy, creates what I refer to as metabolic flexibility. Mm-hmm. So it makes you more efficient in using energy when then you have energy. So it might suck at that specific time when you're doing it, but then when you do have your energy available, I see so much more improvement in those sessions that it's worth my time to do that session fasted. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, the fastest session is high intensity. Either way, like oh, either, I, oh, I, I oh. cycled them through. Like, if if you were to talk to like uh, legit endurance athletes, and I got that protocol from some uh, competitive triathletes in England, mm-hmm. they do twice a week, no matter what, no matter time of the year, they do twice a week morning session fasted, and their morning session is like a three hours ride. Mm-hmm. So it's low intensity. It's not the lowest. It's still pretty intense, yeah. but it's matched to their fasting state, so they're not going flat out. They're sa- they're saving some in the tank but they do that every week and the change they've seen in mitochondria biogenesis, uh, muscle fiber sides, like buffering capacity has been massive. I don't do that because I don't work with triathletes, mm-hmm. but I adapt that, I f- make that fit in my model to get the same type of adaptation. Awesome, no, I'm, I'm in. I mean, it, so with the VO2 max, um, if, if you test an individual, uh, is there a ceiling that you can improve it or is it kind of endless? I mean, like there's always been this kind of idea where, uh, you know, you're kind of born with a VO2 max and maybe training can improve it. But, um, I, you know, I also heard the same thing for, uh, for grip strength that, you know, the certain individual can develop grip strength and that, you know, neurologically you have so much and you can only train it so much. But then we've had other people that talked about, you know, that doesn't exist at all. I have never experienced a ceiling in my life testing VO2. Uh, I've always seen some degree of improvement. Uh, I do agree that like there's a point where like your VO2 can still progress, but you need to be like genetically gifted yeah. for that type of training. Like you're born to be a runner, so to speak. Like the Lance Armstrong, where yes. he was like the high, I, I think he, even before all the other bullshit, like I think when they tested him, he was one of the highest people they'd ever recorded. Yeah. And then the, I think the highest individual was, uh, I want to say it was like a Norwegian or, or Finn. Norwegian, Norwegian skier, downhill or yeah. a, a cross country skier, or some some uh, alpine deal. It was like a hundred and forty or something. Yeah, it was super like high. It, it was on like genetic. I don't remember the number, but it was but extremely it, high. It was like double what even high level athletes were. And then yeah. uh, and then it was like uh, come to find out that like the mom and the, like, it was just like this genetic lineage of fucking endurance freaks. One of my favorite VO two stories comes from one of the Charlie Francis books about the the Russian hockey team. Canada just poured all this money into increasing their VO2 max because they got their their dicks kicked in. So for four years, we're focusing on 
we need to be faster in the third period. We got to get in better shape. So then four years hammered and set records with VO2 max, team records probably. And then same result, got their butts kicked in the third <laughs> period with the hockey team. And, I mean, it was Cold War, war so the communication between Russia and other countries was shut down. Mm-hmm. Finally, that gets resolved. And then the Russians handed over, like the, the strength coaches for the Russian hockey team handed over all their stuff to Canada, and they had worse scores on their VO2 max. So it was just a matter of intent, intensity, yeah. and how they were practicing was the X factor. So practicing was you know, taken with a high level of intensity yeah. that then led to them being in hockey shape versus you know, on paper shape. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I include my uncomfortable training where you're creating lactate. Because mm-hmm. VO2 is a measure of capacity. Sure. You and I can, the three of us can have the same VO2 and perform completely different when we go out and run. Because it's about like VO2, but lactate threshold and how well we tolerate lactate. And that comes with the intensity that you put into training. Well, um, um, you know, we definitely have seen if you continuously um, allow people to, uh, I guess, like bathe in lactate would be the kind of the way we used to think about it. Like, especially with like, you know, like the CrossFit, this like really high glycolytic lactate based training. Like after a while, I mean, you know, the response, it's almost like kind of like if you stab yourself with a pen once, it kind of hurts. But if you just keep doing it over and over again, it's going to be a bloody mess. You won't feel anything. Like that was the analogy where we were kind of doing this lactate bathing. And uh, we got to the point where people were, I mean, really just excellent at uh, not only reaching that place, but like their adaptation into it. So, I mean, I think that's something you can definitely teach if somebody is willing to go into it. And I think the CrossFit taught us that. The problem is, is we thought that there was going to be all these like physiological and neurological adaptations associated with it. And it didn't work the way we thought it would. You just got better at handling more. Yeah. And uh, then all of a sudden you start, you know, people started getting there like the, um, I think it was on Dr. Huberman's podcast. He uh, had uh, David Sinclair that wrote the book um, Longevity, uh, Lifespan. And they talked about uh, like when you exercise, and this has happened to all of us, like let's say on, like we saw it happen, the guys on the assault bike today, you get to that point where you're doing it and you get that kind of like, like that little bit of hit where you feel like, holy shit, I think I'm going to die. Um, that's the training response you're looking for because the genes um, uh, like um, express in, in positive ways when that happens. If you don't do that, then your genes actually express in negative ways and try to kill you off sooner. <laughs> so he was talking because so, and, and the, the way I dug into that was because I was wondering about like, why do they are, why are we getting like a positive gene expression from like uh, real hot saunas that go into cold tubs? And, you know, now contrast has been a real, you know, seems like everybody's doing this. And I wanted to know, like, I know why it works. It makes me feel better. But like, what's the actual physiological adaptation? And it was this positive gene expression. Yeah. And then as I explained it, I thought, man, that kind of makes sense in terms of workout. You get into yeah. something like you're doing those assault bike sprints and like all of a sudden you take that hit where you're like looking around, you're like, holy shit, I don't know if I'm going to die or not. And like, that's actually what you're going for. And then when you get to the point where you're doing it and you don't have that anymore, I don't know if the, if it expresses the same way, you just got really good at bathing and lactate. I'm going to throw it out there. No data to support it, but you said gene expression and like extremely like stressful experience is the same thing with muscle hypertrophy. If you can put yourself under a very, very heavy bar and come out of that when you think you couldn't, that triggers more adaptation. And that's what I firmly believe in too. Like using heavy loads 
for hypertrophy, even if it's just for two or three reps, and you're not in that hypertrophy zone that everyone wants you to be, just the extra level of physiological stress on your system can drive better adaptation. Well, we saw that with the Olympic lifters. Yeah. Um, like that was one thing that uh, kind of flew in the face of a lot of the hypertrophy research because you look at these Olympic lifters that were doing nothing but singles, doubles, and triples at like um, extremely dynamic, I mean, like the you know greatest form of power output, the ability to generate force. And those dudes, especially the little dudes, were carrying a ton of muscle yeah. and yet not doing, I mean, and then you look at the Chinese weightlifters, they do a ton of bodybuilding for accessory, but most of those guys weren't doing that stuff and yeah. were able to carry a ton of muscle. So, I mean, there has to be something with that. There has to be. Yeah, you're sitting underneath 500 pounds straining to stand up for it. doesn't, you don't need 20 reps. You probably only need maybe one. Yeah. I agree. But I mean, no data to support it, just my idea, but it sounds pretty cool. Well, if you think about hypertrophy, um, almost like armor, you know, your body's basically laying yeah. down extra muscle to protect yeah. you. I mean, and if you put yourself in situations where you need more armor, it kind of makes sense. I agree. Very much so. You know. Well, we did touch on this a little bit, and I'll explore the the power of periodization. <laughs> I'll pose this question as a, a challenge for our our listeners that are also following our training programs, we are we are smart enough to program deload, reload weeks, however we can brand it. Like we have a specific target for a cycle, six to eight weeks, and then we need time for those adaptations to lay down on our individuals out there in a garage gym. Yeah, super some, compensation. Some of them don't like that. They don't like taking that week off, allowing time to adapt. So then they, they go find a different training program yeah. or go hammer, you know, the uh, they get the glycolytic hit, if you will. Yeah. That's silly. So it is silly. Uh, so how can we help well, um, these I folks? I talk, I mean, uh, um, the the principle of super compensation I bring up constantly. Like you, like for that, I got to dig you a deep enough hole and then I got to give you a chance to come out of the hole. And if I never give you a chance to come out of the hole, you just fucking end up putting dirt on you and you die. So, so we rebrand these as super comp weeks? No, no. But when we do uh, reloads and what, what also it helps me to do is uh, give like, um, so when my dogs, I have two, uh, two pit bulls when they battle and they like, uh, when they wrestle, when they get done, they flap their ears uh, back and forth and mm -hmm. it clears conflict. So it's like a physiological response. Like they're both shaking their ears, they clear conflict and then they're fine. So they battle, battle, clear conflict. I think it's the shaking of the ears. It's clearing conflict. Like you've got through like six weeks, eight weeks of gnarly training. You got to give people like a little bit for them to recover. And uh, I, I think if you don't and you just keep people in the gun, they can't differentiate between one training adaptation and the next because it just looks like bleh, machine gun. Yeah. So it's so clearing conflict. It's giving breaks. It's actually giving like, have you ever read an email where somebody doesn't use punctuation? <laughs> Uh, I, I fucking yeah. I get fucking emails. He teaches college. That's going to be all of his emails. Uh, dude, ninety nine percent. I read emails where the people <laughs> don't use punctuation and they don't use commas, and it's just like a paragraphs of run on. I like my head fucking explodes. I'll actually so like cut and paste and go put in the punctuation because I can't physically read it without having stops, with having breaks, pauses. And uh, I think you have to have that in the, in the training personally. And that's the way I write it that way. There has to be pauses. There have to be periods. We have to like, we did this. Now we're moving on to this. And I have to give them a week to clear conflict, the shaking of the ears for my dogs. That's the way I view it. So I'm sure he's got many other ideas on it as well. But I have a simple, simple idea. Like if you mentioned the general adaptation syndrome, and that's the foundation of how we cope with training, how we adapt and how we get better over time. Um, 
it's a pretty old model, like 50s, 60s, when it was first proposed. And if you look at the, lots of people uh, claim, them, claim to be experts in the field of physiology, but they actually never spent a second reading the authentic papers. They know what they have learned from other people, but they actually went and looked at the original studies. In the original studies that were done to create that general adaptation syndrome-ish type of model, there were animal-based studies, so there were rats in a lab, and they were exposed to different types of stressors, was either chemical, temperature, or even physical, physical strength, so physical effort. And they were done that in a cyclical manner to see how they were coping with that. And then they were looking at their medulla, look how much like adrenal stress they created and what type of response they had. The one thing that never, no one never realized, uh, and Verkozhansky speaks a lot about that in uh, some of his books, is that every single rat on that study died. So the level of stress that was placed on those animals to create that theoretical model was such that you don't want to recreate in real life because it's unrelieved stress. Verkozhansky clarified that it's like the stress was applied constantly throughout the study and it led to exhaustion to all the rats involved, all the animal models. So that just goes to say that even when you plant so well, you still need to take some time off and relieve that stressor yeah. so that your body can compensate and react. Like that nice curve that we see like stress, adaptation, return to homeostasis, it does work in theory, sure. but you need to allow that time for that change to happen. And the majority of the adaptation comes when you're not training, you're not exercising, you're recovering. That's what your body has the extra energy to tap into and adapt to your training. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the, at the most recent studies on hormones and training, particularly testosterone, um, there's this notion now that is known as energy availability. I think we talked about that briefly last time together. I have a flashback, uh, which means that um, the most important variables in your training is how much energy your body has left to recover. Because if you take energy availability, is your energy intake for the day minus the energy that you use for training, just training, divided by your lean body mass. So the moment you want to recover and you want to bring that energy availability up, you have to remove training. You have to remove training for the equation so your body has more time and energy to rest and recover. Mm. And that's absolutely mandatory. If you don't do that, your testosterone is going to crash, mm. your cortisol is going to spike up, and everything you've done is going to go to waste. But I mean, uh, also age, um, you know, I think about environmental stressors or just like, uh, you know, like, I mean, uh, you're 24 years old, you're unmarried, you got no kids. I mean, like, you know, like maybe you have two bills to pay. I mean, think about like now all of a sudden you have, you know, three kids, a wife, a business, you got all these other factors. And I think people don't realize, and this is what we get into is like, uh, the older you get, the more just, uh, and the analogy I give it is, um, like you're in the kitchen and somebody just plays static. The static just gets louder. You can still hear what's going on. You still would know what's happening. You can still hear conversations. It's just the static just keeps getting louder and louder and louder. And I think, uh, people don't realize that that static gets to the point where it starts to, you know, deteriorating the message and, you know, there's what you want to do and what you can accomplish. And like part of our stuff is being able to be like the internal governor. And when I look at stuff and I look at all the numbers and I, I'm constantly looking at these different, like, all right, what's the deviation? What's this person? I have four or five points I look at and I'm like, fuck man, these people are fucked. Yeah. Like, like we got to like peel this stuff back. And I know that I'm going to have to give them a longer, um, you know, acclimation phase and you kind of go and start playing this stuff. And then, you know, all of a sudden you have an idea and I got to pivot it. And I got to change it when things look like 
you know? And then people hit me up and I'm like, dude, you might need to cut to four workouts a week. I know it says five, but drop this one. Um, you know, go a little bit if you're not recovering. And like, how come I'm not recovering? I'm like, well, shit, dude. Now all of a sudden you're working, you know, you got shift work or you might have a new kid. Uh, yeah. You might have uh, more hours you're working, you know, instead of 40 hours, you're working 60 hours. I'm like, why do you think that if you keep tapping on this side, the well's not going to be as deep and you have some, something has to give. Yeah, for sure. So, And that optimal balance changes from time to time and from person to person like yeah. you can assume to write down a program a piece of paper and know that that program is going to work the way you want it to work you have to see what's going on with the individual subject and i think in that respect if you do have a way whatever way of measuring athlete readiness in some capacity that's a great tool to have because that can show you adaptation as it happens you can see when they're fatigued you can see when they're recovering but you can also see when they're no longer fatigued which means that they can tolerate more load. And I think if you can build a way of measuring readiness, high variability, jump high, whatever that is, that's a great tool to add. Uh, my, my whole deal, especially with the athletes we see, is uh, I always talk to them. I bring them in, like mm -hmm. we always sit down. I'm like, hey, like, uh, you know, how was the training yesterday? When they're in person. When they're in person. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good, uh, especially when the guys come in. Like, I knew they were smashed on Wednesday. And uh, I adjusted, you know, we pivoted, we did some stuff. I cut some stuff out. Um, you know, normally I would have taken longer and we just kind of like, I got them in and got them out a lot faster. And, uh, and then, you know, they still had to dig deep at the very end, but like they even said, as they were leaving, they're like, man, I walked in here, like not wanting to do this. And I'm like, well, yeah, we got to like, believe me, I, I sense it. You know, I'm married. Believe me. I, I, I know uh, anybody that's married is like, something's wrong here. I don't know what it is, but uh, I'm going to peel out on this. So, but like yeah, that's, for the online, for the, for Trainer the online. does offer readiness. If we can aim to get those people to take it seriously, that's a hard they, part. They'll show themselves instead of just clicking through. Uh, but I do like the idea of performance check-ins. Yeah, I like do too. Jump. I I really um ah, man like the, the 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 one that I think would be really easy is that torque meter to be able to get people to be able to test their grip. I mean, uh, vertical jump works in the same way because uh, Todd Rice did the same thing. We would test verticals. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah, so we would test verticals as a way to see you know readiness and uh, and also to see if how you, hard you went on the weekends. Yeah, so <laughs> we we would test uh, verticals on like a Thursday or Friday and also a Monday. Oh man! And he would know that if we went too hard, <laughs> if the vertical was off by like more than I think it was like it was more than ten percent. No, it was it was less than that. It was like if it was off by like more than seven, we got in trouble. He was gonna get fucking smash you. So, uh, but like I remember, really they so uh, more volume following a hard weekend. That's uh, I love the college strength coach logic. Yeah, it, yeah if you, logic. If you didn't logic. rest this weekend and you're not ready, I'm just gonna ask I'm fuck gonna you. you. Yeah, you're <laughs> fucked. <laughs> and then I'm going to be even a bigger hole. But uh, yeah, um, but I, I wonder if like, um, you know, obviously readiness scores are great. Uh, heart rate variability, man, is really interesting for me because uh, there, and I'm, I know it sounds funny, there is so much variability. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, sleep goes into it. I mean, there's so many different things, but I couldn't get it to be consistent. Like, uh, you know, on certain, and the thing that I didn't like about it, especially as an NFL player, was like, let's say I have to go play that day and my heart rate variability score is low. I don't need that like emotional negativity yeah. in my mind to come in and be like, oh, I'm not ready. Because for us, I mean, you got to be able to perform on a moment's notice. Uh -huh. So, to, yeah, we talked about that with Chris Morris and Dr. Chris Morris at Kentucky, top 10 football team, and they hide it. So they take it, the heart rate variability. But they don't show them. But they hide smart. it from the athletes. Yeah. Very smart. Yeah. And then, they, and then they adjust the training based upon it, which is this fluid periodization model, which has always been pretty cool. I dig it. Yeah, auto-regulation or fluid yeah. periodization, yeah. 
it's just all these metrics, you know, like they're all very valuable and they all give you some idea of what's going on with your athletes, but you need to be able to put them into context. Because mm-hmm. like how do variability, like give an example, like a lot, lots and lots of endurance athletes use that because it's, it's very easy to use for them and understand, like it's hard, you know, it's easier to follow. But then they, they, they only train based on that one number, how do variability. And there are situations where like, that happened to me too, I, I, I tried to do that to see what it feels like. Where like you say you go through intermittent fasting or you're doing a ketogenic diet or you're low on carbohydrates, but you are good enough that you schedule your training accordingly to avoid a burnout, but still your muscle glycogen is getting depleted and depleted mm-hmm. and depleted over time. So your heart rate variability might be high at the end of the week. You might be able to go for a longer run or whatever, a marathon or whatever the case may be, but your glycogen is so low that you go out, you try to train at your best, and you crash immediately. Because yeah, that number has been taken out of context. You can't just sure. look at heart rate variability and hoping that it's going to tell you everything about what's going on. You have to be critical and like open-minded and consider different factors in it. And that goes with like end grip, uh, jump high, all those different different type of readiness scores. Nice. No, I, I would love to incorporate stuff like that. I wish there was just a really easy one that, uh, I mean, we're always looking for like a simple, um, you know, uh, cheap, you know, something that, you know, people can relatively get, like we were, you know, using our BFR bands today. And, uh, we, we spent a lot of time developing those because I mean, there's some really nice solutions, but they're kind of expensive, which, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden you get into three, four, five, six hundred $600 for a system. All of a sudden you, you know, you're kind of coming into this, whereas you can create like a, um, you know, a cheaper, easier price point, simpler Then all of a sudden now we get greater adoption. You know, is it going to be as perfect? No, but it's better than better doing nothing. It. Yeah. It's better yeah. than nothing. Well, we do offer the Move the Dirt-esque program that is Grindstone that we still have the opportunity to move, but then it's a choose-your-own-adventure depending on your feel. Yeah, that's been... Um, in time. So, so here's something that um, is always surprising to me because my mind doesn't work like that. But, um, like, for example, like, if I look at a program, I have an uh, ability to see, like, the kind of, like, the meat and the potatoes. Like, what's, like, you know, like, what's my proteins? What's this? I break it into food. And then realize that there's certain things like, so we, start, I started programming stuff so that people would have something to do. Cause if they didn't, they were like little kids who would get themselves into trouble. So, uh, my kids, if you leave them alone and you don't have something to do, they're going to find something to break. So, uh, instead of being like, Hey, I need four quality work days. I'm going to prescribe some other days so that you have something to do for those individuals that can't not do something. The problem is we'd run into people like I can't train five or six days a week. And I'm like, well, yeah, just cut these days out, do this and this. Um, and that's something that people have a hard time. Like my wife is like, if it's written down, I have to do it. I can't look at it and figure out what's not vital. Cause if you like, why did you write something that wasn't vital? And I'm like, well, it's a hierarchy. Yeah. Like I have like the, all the stuff I need to get done. I have this kind of middle tier and then I have a third tier, which I, and I have to almost go through and write like extra credit or if you have time do this because yeah. if people will have to follow it to the letter of the law, whereas I look at it, maybe it's like religion, right? You have like fundamentalists where like Jesus walked on water and then I'm a, in, um, I guess a interpretive where I'm like, uh, did he really walk on water or was that a metaphor for something else? Like yeah. what's, what's the story the Bible's trying to teach me instead of more so like looking at it as like historical accuracy. Uh, so that's where my mind works a little bit. I can look at a program and say, all right, this is, this is what we're trying to get done. And this is the other stuff that he's probably programmed. So I don't get myself into trouble. Yeah. I look at that the same way. Like I have my three or four pieces that like you have to do no matter what. 
And then everything else is like, maybe, or if you have extra time, yeah. you can do that too. So yeah. So grindstone, I actually wrote a program with like, here's my two days that you have to get. And then here's the other days that kind of backfill if you have the time. And uh, I think it's provided a ton of, uh, it's removed a lot of training anxiety, which is something that I observed with these programs, which I like, I don't know how to relieve training anxiety other than to kind of give people the license to not do something. If you're not feeling it like, Hey, if you're feeling great and you want to do it, hit this a hundred miles an hour. If you're not fucking go home, go lay down, go put your feet up. Yeah. And when you said the athletes that just, if it's written down, they have to do it. And I'm thinking back to my college coaching days and I'm like, I had zero of those. It's just, they don't want to be there. <laughs> what the fuck is this? What's a power clean? Yeah. You did it last week. Yeah, no, yeah, that's uh, that's that's kind of an interesting thing. But uh, yeah. I uh, like this is another interesting thing. Like how um, and and text. I mean, you probably understand this better than anybody. And so do you. Like, um, how do you like show or actually tell or like how do you convey to an athlete that the weight room is important? Because like, I mean, maybe in lacrosse, they're like, why are we here? This doesn't have anything to do. I'm a better, like, is the weight room going to make me better? And then allowing them, do they care to get better? Like, I I mean, I think we always assume that every athlete walking through our door is there because they're trying to reap the benefits and they're trying to squeeze the last little bit out of this rag so I can be the highest performer I can, so I can stand on the top of the mountain, you know, as the champion. And uh, that's not the case. Some people are just out there to have a good time. And why the fuck do I have to train? I don't really give a shit if I'm better or worse. Yeah. Did, do you have a take? Uh, I mean, I, I'm just smiling because that happens in research too, you know? Like, ah. uh, it's the variable that you can quantify for, which is motivation. Like, yeah, I can design two training programs and they're both perfect. They're volume match, intensity match, and you're my subject, so I need to have a, an outcome on you. But one of them is completely in and he really wants to get better. It comes in, it gives you 100% of his effort or her effort every time. And the other one is just, oh yeah, this is research, I'm just volunteering, I'm just doing the bare minimum. And that's going to affect the outcome of your, of your uh-huh. intervention. And that's, that's the same in training. I mean, you can't really account for that. You either are internally driven and you're motivated or you're not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely love working with the, the high school population and notice a difference in a transition between, I mean, sometimes it happens their senior year. It's not all freshmen. But when fun, having fun is transitioning from, oh, I'm, I'm here with my boys, we're playing grab ass, like just sticking around during practice, to fun begins to, I'm starting to pick up the skill. I'm starting to get better at this. I haven't heard anybody say dicking around in a long time. Well, <laughs> I mean, a practice. <laughs> I, I, like, I, I imagine just a bunch of like uh, voice cracking, uh, prepubescent boys on like the threshold of manhood, uh, just out there dicking around. With a weapon. With a yeah. weapon. Yeah. yeah. So you start to see shenanigans ensue. And and some kids they get in the, the accelerated skill development and they take bigger jumps and then they leave their f- I mean they leave some friends behind. So the friends that, you know, they they just weed themselves out that they just still want to play grab ass and they don't take lacrosse seriously because they play a different sport. Yeah. And this is just what I'm doing at this time. But then when they take on the identity as a lacrosse player, then we have leaps and bounds. So if it's, it's the transition from, okay, I see a, a maturity level in this kid from, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm just sticking around having fun, use that again, to now I'm starting to get good. And the, I've been with these kids. Can we use kids. that term with female athletes? Uh, I don't are female know. Athletes out the most difficult around? population to ever coach is a high school female athlete. Oh, yeah. 
I'm I'm good. I'm happy with the <laughs> the boys team. I had to take on uh, 300 high school age girls with, when I was training with Ruiz, all volleyball girls. That was the most difficult component. Like put me in the pool, freaking all drown proof all day versus coaching those teens. But uh, yeah, seeing that maturity level grow and expand and you can't force it. Like if I, yeah. and I sense it within myself because I've been coaching so long, if I start to have a, uh, resentment's a strong word, but like a, like an aggression towards a kid that just won't stop being immature, then, okay, well, I need to avert my coaching energies towards yeah. the kids that will, and I see a future in them in the sport. Like, I, don't, I will never give up on the kid, but at the same time, like, at this moment in time, yeah. when I'm feeling pissed, I'm going, to t- I'm going to turn away from you and turn to somebody that will listen at this moment in time. Yeah, no, it makes sense, dude. I, um, like the, uh, you know, like my son is uh, six and I coach his flag football team or I, nice. I actually don't coach his flag football team. I show up and the head coach is like, Hey John, can you help? And so I run the defense and usually the scout and like anything he doesn't want to do. Uh, I always tell him like, dude, uh, and now all of a sudden I run like the conditioning and like, it's, it's pretty funny. Like I saw him at a birthday party. He's like, dude, thanks so much. It's so nice. You know, I can just focus on this. I'm like, yeah, dude, believe me, I'm out here to have kids have fun. Um, but well, t- to, to steal John Wellbornism, like a certain amount of kids at, at lower maturities, they need trainers. So we're training behaviors. We're yeah. training how to act and we're like getting the dogs exercise yeah. before we can teach them tricks. So that's a big thing for me. I'm like, hey, you know what? Like uh, 90% of this world is pretending like you know what you're doing. So like uh, the kids, like all of a sudden are like, you know, screwing around. I'm like, dude, if you get down in the stance and you give the impression, you know what you're doing, there's a 90% chance you're going to do it right. So like trying to get them into this. But uh, for the most part, man, I um, uh, like, so whenever you tell these stories about these lacrosse kids or what, like football was so different. Like uh, I wanted to play football because we got to lift weights and I wanted to be jacked. I wanted to be big and strong. And I knew that like the, all the football players were all big and strong. And they went to this place where this room where all these big and strong people were. And I didn't know if it was with what they were doing or it was just osmosis of being around the weights. <laughs> you got big and jacked. But I knew that like if you went in there and you did whatever they were doing in there, they were going to get bigger and stronger. And so like that idea of being like bigger and stronger and physically impressive and being able to be strong, like that culture was what was important. And it just so happened that football was like the catalyst and really that was kind of, um, I guess you could say like just was the culture of playing football. So yeah. like that's where I wanted to be. Whereas it was weird for me for sports where that like strength wasn't uh, the cultural like cornerstone of it, like baseball or basketball or some of the other sports where I'm like, wait, you guys don't lift weights? Mm-hmm. You know, whereas like the wrestling dudes, like like the, we would go into like where the wrestling room was and they would do these conditioning workouts. These guys were absolute savages. And I remember thinking like, if I wanted to be in really good shape, I would go do wrestling yeah, and, uh, and, and I regret not doing wrestling. Um, you know, I got so many scholarship offers early on that I had this idea that I had to weigh certain and lift weights and do this. And like, all I knew is that those dudes trained so hard and they all like got way skinnier. And I had this fear that like, I would never, like if I lost all that weight, would I be able to get it back? And now I, I'd like regret the shit that I didn't wrestle in high school. And I should have done that. Greco Roman. Oh, I, I like, like the, the wrestling stuff we do at jits and all that. Like, I'm so sad like playing football that would have added such an like Steve Neal being on my team. Um, you know, Matt Pollock, who's uh, probably listening to this. Um, those guys were such high level wrestlers and like their balance and technique and strength was so good that I wish I'd had that piece in my game early on. Well, that's, that's the awesome thing. And I appreciate it about football is weightlifting is just, just so much a part of it. 
But then working with other college athletes, they do, the coaches understand, yeah, you have to go to the weight room. And then the athletes never get buy-in. So some of them, it's their first exposure, with volleyball, soccer, baseball, their first exposure to the weight room. And man, some pick it up and click and run with it. Yeah. And some just, it's activity. I think it's uniforms. For I think it's uniforms. The football uniforms, the jerseys are so tight at the top that you have oh, to have big fucking I arms. I thought you meant the workout uniforms, the midriff. You got to no, show that midriff. No, when, when you show up on game day, they tailor your uniforms and the arms are so tight. Basketball. Yeah, but like, uh, like you can be skinny in a basketball jersey and, and wear a t-shirt, uh, Under Armour t-shirt. t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, like you know, like the wrestlers were basically in like unitards, um, like uh, what do they call them? Like, uh, what, uh, what do you say? Onesies? Well, uh, don't don't you remember in Sixteen Can or in um, the Breakfast Club where he's no. like, I wear the required uniform. Okay. So like, you know, know, those dudes are pretty fit. So like that, like you have to look the part. So I think any sport where you have to look the part, they see the weight room and being like, okay, I can like, this is, this weight room is going to help me be more jacked to look the part. Whereas like, I think in lacrosse, it's all about being cool. 90, 10, John. I, I got the impression that like how you wear your helmet and your, your fluff, your fluff, tilt, your tilt and your, uh, lettuce, your yeah, flow. Yeah. Your flow. <laughs> Dude, these guys got into like, uh, we had a guy come on that was a professional lacrosse player in Texas, having played lacrosse his whole life. Like there was like a whole uh, like conversation about uniforms and like looking sweet and all this that like completely lost me. Wow. Because, uh, you, but you get it. It's like the cornerbacks no, on I, the team. I, uh, and the dude, receivers. We used to call them the killer bees. So, like the little dudes, like the defensive backs and receivers, we used to call them the killer bees because they put so much time and work into their outfits, which was ridiculous to me. It just felt like too much emotional investment. That's the 90 10. 90% how you look, 10% how you play. Whereas wow. for us, uh, that 90% would be like, how jacked do my arms and my legs look hanging out of this jersey? Fuck all this. I just want to look jacked. Whereas those dudes are like, well, I got like seven streamers on and like four pairs of socks. So I think it was just a different way to look fucking sweet. Now imagine a whole team like that as an offensive lineman, like to be able to like get your Jersey tailored up. So your arms, then you're standing out there at soldier field and negative 10 degrees and t-shirts looking fucking yoked. That's what you hope for. And then all of a sudden the announcers would be like, it's so cold out. Look how, you know, look how big that guy's arms are. That's what you want. That's the type of shit you want. (laughs) Completely different culture. Yes. Well, the, I, I the mean, the beauty of Texas lacrosse is half the kids play football. Yeah. So we get some of it. But well, I, it's like I talked with Victor about, man. Like, uh, um, you know, if you're going to go like to these jujitsu, like, uh, uh, you know, anything like the ADCC or this no gi stuff, like, you know, you take your shirt off, like, you got to look the part. Like, you got to look like you've done the work. Like and, an exercise scientist. Yeah. Well, kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, I. I I wonder what the exercise scientist, if like you show up and like they meet you and you're, in, you're in good shape, Thank but you. opposed from some, like some other dudes who aren't in good shape. And you're like, exercise shouldn't be anywhere near your title. Like, yeah. like uh, how do you deal with that one? It's like when I go to see like doctors and they're not in good <laughs> shape. I said, dude, you got to tell me how to leave healthy? No, thank you. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah. Uh, I've met some really poorly shaped doctors and yeah. been like, you shouldn't be giving anybody health advice. I agree. See, I mean, I don't think every strength and conditioning coach should be like a bodybuilder or anything like that. But like, if you you have to practice what you preach, you know, like if you believe in the importance of fitness and training and strength training for health and performance, and then you can yourself lift or like at least look the part to mm-hmm. some extent, it's pretty sad. 
Yeah. And there's so many of those. Is um unfortunately. Uh it feels like a lot of research is coming out of Australia. Yeah. Um like whenever I look at this stuff, a lot of the sports scientist stuff, like they've gone really big into these sports scientists, uh like um their version of what is it like the Australia like the, their version of the NSCA. Yeah. Um they have uh, a ton of research and I see a lot of it coming out of there. Why um why Australia has like why has that become such a hotbed for this kind of in uh, sports scientist discussion? I think Australia and England are doing a lot of pioneering work in different aspects of sports science. And I do believe it's because whoever is in charge of making decisions there in terms of like we're allocating funds and money to invest in sport understood the importance of investing in research mm. and good quality research. Like, you know, not all research is the same. Sure. If you if you're investing in research to drive your entire sport movement to all not a whole new level, like your professional athletes to a whole new level, you need to do research on professional athletes. Mm -hmm. You need to do research in a in a context that fits what you're trying to get. Whereas we get some of, and I say that with all the respect for anyone that does research, but we get a lot of the leftovers. Like, yeah, you want to do research, yeah, recruit like 20 DPT students at your college. They're active, they train, they're good, they're good candidates for your research. No, they're not. Like, yeah, they can come in the weight room and they can train, but I'm not expecting them to give me the level of intensity and effort and commitment that an elite level athlete would give me. Mm. So I think those countries figured out that if there's a better way to do that, that is investing in research at the elite level. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going to make the difference long term. I firmly believe that because if you, if you look back at all the R core research in the 70s, 80s and early 90s, where research was still pretty good and pretty solid, it was done on elite level athletes. Like yeah. Bosco's work, Verkoshansky work, yeah. oh, they yeah. didn't work with anything that was less than a national champion. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's why Verkoshansky stuff was yeah. so great. I mean, and, and the outcomes where people were like, oh, we're unable to replicate the outfits. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess you well. had the fucking world's best athletes. Yeah. You know, you, you know you're know, you doing, uh, um, you know, you're testing, you know, reactive jumps uh, with a guy that holds a world record in fucking triple jump. I mean, yeah, I like, yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, that's why his research was always so good because he was working with the best of the best in yeah. such a high level population and he didn't have to like spend time teaching. Whereas I think some of this stuff, it's like, well, we took 20 kids that, uh, you know, subscribe or, um, showed up to make 20 bucks and they'd never lifted weights yeah. before, or at least that's what they told us in the survey. And like, uh, you know, is, I mean, while it's meaningful for beginners, like, uh, you know, I think we're looking at like tip of the spear stuff, like how do you make the yeah. best in the best world? So. Uh, is there... This is an interesting question. Is there more motivation in the exercise research community to just accomplish and become a doctor, or is it to find more things that can be applied? Like to discover or just accomplish like a personal achievement? I think, oh man, a lot of people are going to get upset now. Uh, I think for a lot of researchers, it's just how many times their name shows up on PubMed. That's all they care about, like how much they can publish. They don't care if they publish good quality stuff or stuff that is applicable or not. As long as it's like research grade publication, they're good with that. They publish it, they have their names on several is, studies. Isn't there some weight to being like, I've been published 40, 50, 60, 70 times? Oh, like, people fight over that. Yeah. Like if you talk to the R core, like researcher people, research people, they know exactly how many times they've published. They know exactly how many times their name shows up and they know how many times other people have published. And that's like a little bit of a metric to judge how good you are, which I understand to some extent because that's part of their job as faculty members and they have to produce research and it's all good. I'm not saying that it's bad. I think there should be more interest in doing like applicable research that 
which, you know, the downside of that is that if you really want to do good research, it's time consuming. Mm-hmm. You can't publish 20 papers a year because you'll be working on something that takes the majority of your time to make it happen. So you might have like one publication every two years instead of 20 publications a year because it's a longer intervention. It requires more time, more present, and not many people are willing to do that. But if you look at people like Carmelo Bosco, Yuri Verkoshansky, like they didn't, even, they didn't even bother about collecting data if they didn't see someone for at least a year or two. So it was more time consuming, it was more engaging, and they were coaches too. So they had the time to do that. They had yeah. the time to dedicate to coaching and doing research while they were coaching. And that disconnect, that, that connection now is a disconnection. We either are, we only have researchers or coaches. Mm. They very rarely work together. That increase the amount of time that you have to dedicate if you're a researcher. Is is that different in Australia? Or I I hope I think so. I I, I want to believe it is different. No, I, I think but it's I'm not uh, sure. I, I think it's very similar because the the issue and the pushback is that they're going big into research, but the practical application, there's still a loss. That the people are happy to be on the research side and they almost guard it like a little fiefdom, and that it's not there's it, it, the divide's getting bigger. Like they're doing more and more research, but it's not porting over because the strength coaches aren't as involved. So like they've seen like the rise on research, but the quality of the coach is not as high. And I, I think that that it has to be as a as a strength coach or a person that works with athletes. I think you have to listen to principles and then find different ways to continue to stress and see whether or not it works or not. Like if, uh, you know, I mean, you're, you know, like we're talking about hypertrophy and part of your research is understanding it. And yet, um, you know, there's different forms of hypertrophy. I mean, they're not all created equal, but yet if you were to talk to somebody, muscle is muscle. But then we've also seen that, you know, certain muscle doesn't produce more force. And if you're putting on muscle at at the expense of not creating more force, is it be, is it really as beneficial? It's just you making know. you heavier, you know? Yeah, it's just making you bigger. Yeah, and, 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 and it's not doing anything to make you more dynamic, yeah. which I think at the end of the day, if you were to talk about longevity, I mean, we talk about like, you know, one of the greatest determining factors for longevity is uh, your ability to maintain muscle mass and how long you can keep it and sarcopenia and this. But, um, you know, we understand muscle in terms of being able to generate force and using it in interesting ways, not just indiscriminate muscle hypertrophy that's not allowing the person to perform at a higher yeah. level. So like for me... For, for the average person, they would probably be like, oh, they're the same. But for us, we look at them in different contexts. Yeah. And I think you mentioned before, like the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, the Cold War period and all that uh, stuff happening between the US and the Russians. Um, back in those days, there was a reason why so many countries were investing into sport because for them, winning a gold medal at the Olympics was a reason to be proud for. Like that was showing how good of a nation they were. Like if you read Medvedev's original book on periodization, is there's so much science in it, but there's a lot of politics too. For them cool. to be able to develop good athletes was a reason to be proud for. You know, yeah. like our country is so good that our athletes are the best in the world. So they wanted to invest in that niche because it was worth their time. And that is long gone. Like we don't look at sport that way anymore. We look at sponsorship, we look at money, uh-huh. we look at endorsement, we don't look at gold medal. Hmm. As a matter of fact, some of the teams that don't even win still make a lot of money with marketing and marketing yeah. campaigns. So it's not about winning. It's about the movement of sport marketing as a whole. You know, it's different. So I think our priorities have changed and shifted over the years, uh, unfortunately. One of the conversations Dr. Romanoff and I had, then um, this is probably one of my favorite stories I've ever heard in terms of strength and conditioning, but um, the, uh, the Politburo and like the politics in Russia and the, you know, communist deal, they were obsessed with this idea of like, you know, basically dominating sport as a, 
uh, as a beacon that, you know, what they were doing was so much better than everybody yeah. else. And so there was a national identity associated with it. So um, they put together a council that was going to like figure out how to replicate this for all athletes. So they asked everybody of any value that had ever coached anybody or any high level athlete before or after that they were going to submit programs. And so like, Hey, this guy was a national level, triple jumper, jumper. This guy was a, um, you know, Olympic sprinter, whatever. So they got their coaches and they were like, we want you to submit all of their programs. And then we're going to go all through them and see what common threads we can see if we can find some principles to build this upon. And uh, if you can imagine Dr. Romanoff telling me the story, I'm like, wow, it sounds incredible. He's like, yeah. So uh, they, we submitted all this information and um, they hired a team of individuals, hundreds of individuals to pour over the sets and reps and movements and put the whole thing together. And then finally, like after three years, they sent out this decree, like you have to present this information. And the guy that was in head of it was like, okay. And so they had this big sports conference. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing. And so the, you know, like the guy who's like, you know, charge of this research has to get up and present it. And he stands up and, you know, obviously there's like all these people and this, and it's this big deal. And he's like, <laughs> um, after three years of research and looking at like hundreds of athletes and thousands of programs and crunching all these numbers. And, you know, we worked nonstop for three years. We only came up with uh, two truths. Uh, the strongest people in the world lifted the heaviest weights in training and the fastest people ran the fastest in training. <laughs> And like, it was silent. And like, uh, you know, all of a sudden the guy got like pulled off stage and probably shot in the back, you know, <laughs> you know, like he, you know, he is no longer of concern. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so he's telling me this story and uh, I was like, yeah, 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 this. And he was like, listen, the strongest people in the world lifted the heaviest weights in training and the fastest people ran the fastest. That was it. And so whenever we talk about training and like, you know, whether it's this and all this other stuff, it always comes down to, and I was telling uh, Shandi and the guys this today, um, you know, for all the bands and all the training and battling ropes and this and all the other shit, the only things that never got easy, it was sprinting, never got easy. I never got done running and thought, oh yeah, that was not bad because the minute that I did, I just ran faster and the weights never got light. And so from those two models, like I was able to discern that a strength program that looks like lifting some form of heavy weights and sprinting and running and rinsing and repeating and doing it with regularity should be the most beneficial one. Yeah. And uh, I just remember like, you know, cause people get into this block periodization and this and building up the heaviest or the strongest dudes lifted the heaviest weights and the fastest people ran the fastest in training. Yeah. That was the only two truths they had. And I think from that piece, uh, as he told me, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then like, I think as I was driving home, like the next day or something, I was like, oh my God, dude, that was so impactful. And I think that little story and that little analogy has helped me so much in my stuff. Like, you know, we, uh, we, we get so excited with all this information, but you have to bring it back to the basics Absolutely. and realize that like, like this thing is, it, you know, as complicated as we make it, it's still a foundational pyramid. I mean, you still have this, you know, organism that we're trying to drive adaptation and you got to put stressors in there. And, you know, if it doesn't work, then you got to pivot and um, hopefully we get to the end. Yeah. And I think uh, a little story, just a few minutes, but uh, over the summer, we went back to Italy for vacation and my wife is a, she's a competitive weightlifter. She has competed for Team USA as well. So she's uh, good. I saw the quads. She, yeah, yeah, she's good. I saw, I saw her walking <laughs> on quads and she was like, Hey, is it cool if I lift? And I'm like, I, I know, you know what you're doing with those quads. Yeah. So she's, she's good. She's yeah. a good weightlifter, you know? And she has competed at national levels and international levels, and she's gone through the whole journey. And but she she only did that in the United States, so in a little, little like niche in Southern California. Then we went to Italy 
and we went to we were lucky enough to spend the day with the Olympic team there training and they're some of the best athletes in the world right now in terms of weightlifting sure. they're phenomenal and some of those athletes that were there with us training they were either competing at or trying to win national championships so they were in a place where she has been to in her career and then she started making the comparison between the two like she was one of the best athletes here competing at nationals meddling at nationals and she had to juggle between work school paying for her own training paying for her own food like everything was at her own expenses and then we saw the guys in italy and the girls in italy who live where they train they're paid to train maybe they're not paid a lot but they're paid to train they train twice a day they have nothing else to worry about the state takes care of everything for them they're not making big money but they're capable of chasing their dream and just give that 100 and you 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 understand that there's a difference there's a disconnect sure. between the two realities yes you're looking at the same athletes the same body body class same type of performance same sport but they're not the same athletes it's different yeah like the, the number of stressors that a person needs to go through when they have to handle work family school yeah the bills to pay it's completely different than someone that sits on a couch the entire day and all they have to worry about is like either doing uh cold bat lifting or eating that's yeah. all they have to worry about sounds it's, awesome it's different uh, you know uh Derek Woodsky and I had this conversation um he was like hey uh you know the one thing nobody ever talks about especially with NFL players is um when you were in college like I was like yeah we were below the poverty line <laughs> like we are our, our scholarship checks were 740 bucks uh, my mom and dad gave me $300, so I had just over $1,000, and my rent was $475, so I had about 500 bucks to spend on food. And uh, then all of a sudden you get to the NFL, and you're like, I'm going to eat filet every fucking meal for the rest of the month. And like you just have more money to spend, and just the quality of food and the ability to access food and not have to go to school and do all that, just it was seemed so much better. I remember walking into a store and being like, you know, normally I'd like walk over to like the uh, – you know, discount meat deal and you're like looking at it and you're like trying to do this mental math of like, okay, I can afford this and this. And I remember I walked in and I was like, wait a minute, I can, I can buy whatever I want in here. I'm going to get some both, you know? And it was just Jeez. like, yeah, it was, <laughs> I, I've told these guys a story when I walked in, I realized I could afford all of this cheese because they had all this like bitch in like, <laughs> you know, like all this like really cool, like Italian heart cheese. And, um, now my mouth's going to water. But I remember when uh, Dr. Deepa Squall did my diet, um, like the idea of like uh, hard cheeses, olive oil, and, uh, and and meats was like a big part of our diet for the anabolic stuff. So to this day, like a charcuterie board, but like that comes out, I'm like, oh, this is like my death row meal right here. <laughs> but I remember going in and like he would like did my diet stuff. And I realized I was like, he gave me like four different types of cheese. It was like, um, you know, I mean, you're Italian, you know, all these hard cheeses, but like, it was bitching. I was like, I can afford all this stuff that used to be so expensive, but now I got more money. So yeah. I, I know exactly what she's talking about. And then people wonder, like, why are, for instance, Italians in weightlifters or Russians in track and field, why are they that much better? Well, because they, they believe in what they're doing. They're investing their energies. There's some financial backup. And chances are they're probably also doing research with those athletes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yes, it's the same sport, but it's not the same type of athletes. Who, who was she training with, uh, Sean Waxman? Or uh, what was no, she training yeah, she, Well, she never trained under Waxman, but she knows Coach Waxman very well. Mm -hmm. She trained under Bob Takano okay. for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. And now she's training under Chris Ahsoka weightlifting. Okay. So, yeah, she's, yeah. she's been around for a while. She's, okay, nice. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, you know, right where, where I'm from. I mean, I'm from Torrance, Palos Verdes yes. area. So, and we lived in Orange County, so I know all those guys. So, Chris is in Orange County. We live in Long Beach, so we're yeah. in that, that area for sure, yeah. Nice. Cool. Yeah, that was a very, very interesting experience for sure. Yeah.
Anything else? That was awesome. I love the the in person, especially on the second time around. I yeah. think once we get to know somebody and then we sit down in person, we're excellent at breaking bread and having some fun. Awesome. Well, it's cool. Well, thank you, Doc, or soon to be Doc. Yeah, thank you uh, for having me. This was okay. great. Awesome. Well, in, enjoy Austin. Yes, I and will. All it has to offer and the race and everything. The barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of barbecue. Go eat it. Cool. Well, thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye. Thank you.